This week your guest is Robert Bobby Colleton, a former paratrooper with the 173rd Airborne Brigade and the US Air Force Seer Specialist Instructor. And without further ado, the Lead Wasps podcast episode 35 is live. Oh, zero four zero alpha confirm that's bombs dropping on Mansdrak. Just first of all, I just want to say thank you very much for getting in touch and you know showing your support. <clears throat> I appreciate. It. How how did you come about to to discover the podcast? So honestly, first of all, I gotta say that's a fucking brilliant flag behind you. That thing's awesome. <laughs> you, you can get it online. I, I, I'll give you the guys' names um, if, if oh, you want to buy, buy something yeah. Uh, similar. Yeah, that's that's legit. Um, so honestly, like I stopped listening to music like two years ago. And uh, yeah, I was my ask the question. I was like, "This is a drinking podcast, so you you've confirmed it. So perfect." Yeah, if you um, if you want to grab a beer, if you, you know, <laughs> I, I'm already I'm all set. I already got some. <laughs> Good lad. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I stopped listening to music a, a while ago, and I, I you know picked up like I've been listening to podcasts. I'm a big fan of uh, of the Jocko podcast. I'm a big fan of Mike Ritland, you know, the Mike Drop, um, and I like hearing the story stuff. So honestly, yours yours popped up like in a, you should also listen to this on, uh, on Apple podcasts. And it was, uh, I was like, Oh, that looks interesting. And then I, I clicked it. And, and what, what, what triggered me, it was like an infantryman's podcast. You know, it was like, Hey, this is down and dirty infantry, nothing special. Cause you know, you listen to all the other podcasts and it's, it's, they're all great dudes, but they're all ex seals, ex green berets, ex, you know, and, and, and some of us never, never made it that high and just, you know, lived in a fucking foxhole and uh <laughs> got to do you know got to do the fun stuff and uh so i started listening and i was i was i was really intrigued because it was it was just like listening to any of the dudes that i served with and 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 my friends and and you know the humor both both dark and 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 just regular humor and then just some of the stories and intermixed and in how people are doing a lot in their life afterwards was just really cool and that's why i was like i just reached out and i was like hey man if, if you ever need anybody to chat with if you ever run out of people like I'm more than happy to, to yeah. jump on. And yeah. I, uh, I'll, I'll maybe even just stick it out there as well as like a little advertisement. And I'm more than happy to, for guys to get in touch and, you know, uh, send me a quick bio. I'll read through it and get in touch with you. And literally the, the whole premise of this podcast is, is to get, you know, guys like me who, who aren't special forces, but who have cool experiences to share because, you know, as much as as much as like you said, the guys who are tier one, tier two, special forces, and you know, have gone all around the world and done some crazy shit. There's, there's some dude who has done, you know, Jocko talks about it in his podcast, right? The the yeah. U.S. National Guard that were there a year, for 13 months before him, he yep. was get, he was getting told by private soldiers about this SOP that they have in place, and you know that was completely contrary to what they what he was going to put in place. So he's getting briefed up by a private soldier from the, the United States National Guard, and he's a he's a bloody goddamn SEAL team commander. So I know you know the guys who the guys who who might be like us, like enlisted and just regular regular army, regular infantry. They've got fucking some cool stories as well, and um, like I'm more than happy to get 
th th those dudes on. You know, I had, uh, you know, probably biggest name I had on was uh, Jason Gardner. Yep. I've had uh, uh, a couple of British guys as well, authors and, and you know, a few other guys who are fairly big names. But, um, you know, I'm more than happy to get those guys on. But for me, I really want to get people like yourself who, you know, are just regular infantry dudes. And uh, another guy we had on recently, Jared, Jared Pruitt, United States Marine Corps. Um, and he he had been with um, the push in Ramadi and he'd been in the, the push in, in Hellman with the with the Marines. And, you know, how many people ever hear those stories about the U.S. Marine Corps operating in Hellman? Exactly. You know, I, I, I've never came across a podcast about it. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And it's and that's what intrigued me again. And like I, I said, I, when I sent you my bio, it's like, hey, man, like I've got some I've got some interesting stories like and, and it's stuff that, you know, most people don't don't write books about and most people don't get you know documentaries and it's it's average everyday grunt life and uh I, I was fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time on multiple occasions and i i you know those are the things that are cool and th those are the things to me like and it's it's like not you know you don't have these like you know, I do have these awesome stories where it's like, yeah, we did a target raid and we hit a house. But I also have these stories where we went out on a 45 fucking day foot patrol and, and like <laughs> did, did infantry stuff and just lived. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's like and it all kind of smashes together. And I also like listening to your 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 episodes and, and some of the stuff where they talk about the guys um, who who live in that, you know, like you, you don't you you were there for so long, but you don't remember everything because you just it's it's so crazy to me and i'm the same way it's it's i mean for me honestly like some of it's 20 years ago for me like i was in bosnia as a peacekeeper in 1999 and i still vividly remember certain things but i was like fuck i was there for seven months and yeah. like i couldn't tell you like i was trying to think like like when did we go to chow like how, how like 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 what was the what was the breakdown for that and i, I couldn't remember those things but i could i could remember you know driving past a uh a un company that was digging out a, a mass grave like i could remember that vividly but i can't remember like how the chow was set up like how the the, the food was and like that kind of thing it's just crazy to me and and th these are brilliant because you're documenting stories of the every average everyday person and when you go back and look at history like i'm a huge history nut and that's some of the things i listen to as well as like books on tape while i'm at work and and you know after world war ii these guys came back home and they, they had these like audio interviews 10 years after, and they were trying to document all this history because they never thought these things were going to happen again. And like going forward in time, it kind of gets forgotten about because everyone knows, you know, the Chris Kyles, everyone knows the Jockos, but they don't, there was, there was hundreds of thousands of just everyday average, not only grunts, but, truck drivers and fuel specialists and everyone that made the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan happen their lives and their stories. And it's, it's, those are some cool things that I think people really need to hear about because it's the every, every average day person that that's out there, you know, that joined the military and, and, and went away to war and came back home. Yeah. A hundred percent, and and just again, th thanks for thanks for even reaching out and, and supporting us. It does mean a lot, <clears throat> and it's cool that you know Apple's Apple suggested my podcast, and you know I never knew that was you know that was happening. Um, so it's it's fucking awesome for you for you to tell me that. But um, uh, if 
if you don't mind, we'll we'll get stuck right into it, and we'll we'll start off with the uh, the the opener that we're doing now, and that would be the question where you share a story or an incident with us um, that happened to you while you were deployed or on a target or, or, or doing whatever that at the time it, it was happening you did not want anyone to know about, but you're more than happy to share now with, with the boys. Dude, we could do a whole podcast on all those that I have. <laughs> I have plenty of those. But uh, I, I was thinking about that and I chose one and, and I've, told, I've told it to very few people. I was actually asking my wife last night if I ever told her the story. And uh, she said, no. And I said, okay, well, you have to listen to the podcast and you have to wait. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so the only time I ever bled in theater, it was self-inflicted. <laughs> and it, and I'm, I, I, it was a crazy time, right? So we were in Afghanistan in 2005. And uh, we, were, we transitioned from living, like doing foot patrols. And they were like, hey, you're going to stay in this compound now and you're gonna make it yours so we would get these like crazy ass drop-offs of mail because we wouldn't get mail for weeks at a time and then we'd get like a whole bunch and we'd get these crazy packages from all these people in the united states that were like oh we're just gonna send all this stuff to these people these 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 soldiers out there and and they'll love it so we got a package and in it was like three golf clubs and like (laughs) and like 20 golf balls and we're like "Uh, okay like (laughs) sweet so we had no idea what to do with them. So some guys were like, well, let's just go up on the roof of this compound and like, and like smash them out into the field. They're like, nah, because then we can't go get the ball. So what we did is we had this lumber that was set to build like our bunkers and stuff. We had these huge like, like uh, they were like four by four wooden posts. And so me and a couple of the boys, we, we dug holes and we drove them into the ground. And then we took mosquito nets and basically like, like stapled them, like nailed them to the, to the inside and the backside so you could – hit the golf ball into the mosquito net and then it would drop straight down. So it was like our own little, little private driving range. And, uh, we, we, it was right behind where we slept. Like we just made this, it was in between the compound wall and like the little hut, the house where we mud hut where we slept. So I'm out there by myself one day and I'm just crack, cranking these golf balls and I'm, I'm, I'm in rotation, just swinging, swinging. All of a sudden I hit a golf ball and it, it shanks and goes off the four by four post and comes right back and drills me <laughs> right in the face and it hits me on the corner of the eye I have this huge scar here now and i'm by myself behind and i'm pouring blood down my face and i've just got like a brown t-shirt on and like my 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 combat trousers and i come around the front to the house and someone sees me and they're like holy fuck sergeant colleton's hit like dudes start rolling out throwing their kid on they think we're under hit i'm like no 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 i'm like doc 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 just come look at this and so he looks at it and he's like all right, well, I'm not going to stitch it. I'm just going to glue it. And uh, there you go. So I've not really told too many people that. Luckily, that's the only time I bled uh, <laughs> either, but it was self-inflicted from the fucking golf ball. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. Uh, I, I've got uh, a similar story. So the exact same thing, you get sent care packages from from people all over the world, oh, all over the UK and all over the world, yep. Um, but ours certainly don't come with golf balls and golf clubs. They come with <laughs> fucking tins of beans and you know bars of soap that's what we're getting from the uk the british public um so anyway we get these tins of beans and we'd been eating fucking super noodles or like uh, ramen noodles for for literally weeks and months and we'd got so fed up with those and we got so fed up with rations that anything different was like oh fucking bonus so uh someone someone had sent us out a tin of um like it was like 
meal ready ready to eat but you just had to heat it up it was um curry like curry with rice and chicken in it so it's you can tell if it's in a can it's going to be absolutely disgusting but much better than ramen noodles and rations so anyway um i go I, you know i've got this can but we don't have an opener so obviously every infantry infantry bloke's got his bayonet so start stabbing away at this can and i get right to the end and it's like i just need to crank it open as i crank it open the bayonet slips and stabs right into my uh, <laughs> right into my wrist and it goes in between like two ligaments i'm looking in at the hole and i'm like I'm pretty sure that's bone and the boys uh one of the medics come comes over and she's like no that's like your ligaments just <laughs> and then gives me those little butterfly stitches there was no blood whatsoever it just went in so clean and in. Yeah, yeah i was like clean fuck's in. sake um yeah. but i've got a little scar here as well not not big one on my, on my head though just uh it's covered <laughs> with a tattoo now as well but that that would be mine um yeah. but yeah i was quite embarrassed and it was like uh i, I needless to say i did not use the driving range again <laughs> all right man give a give a yourself a brief introduction to the to the listeners and just get describe who you are and a little bit of what your career looked like so uh first and foremost i want to say thank you so much for having me on the lead wasps this is this is really awesome um it's a great platform i love it i love the stories uh, my name is bobby colleton um i had an 18 year career that spanned the army national guard the U.S. Army, the U.S. Air Force, and the Air Force Reserve. Um, I was an infantryman and a SEER specialist, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, I've been fortunate enough to deploy to the former Yugoslavia, uh, Iraq during the invasion, Afghanistan three times, as well as some other tours in uh, doing some stuff in Malaysia and uh, in Korea uh, when I was with the Air Force. So uh, I'm excited to be here, and uh, hopefully... Uh, some of the boys are going to chuckle at some of the stuff that we uh, we talk about. Yeah, absolutely, man. The pleasure is mine for for um, to have you on here. And, and you know, like I said, thank you very much. Like I said before, thank you very much for for taking the time out of your your Saturday evening to to sit down with me. Um, it, it's it's a pleasure. It's always fucking great to to catch up with dudes all over the place. Um, especially if you get someone who can tell tell a good story. So I think we're onto a winner. Um, uh, <laughs> but what, what did some of the opportunities look like for you when you were, when you were growing up, uh, just describe what they, they were like and you know, where, where you come from, what it's like. So I, I, am uh, I'm an army brat. My dad spent 27 years in the army. He retired as a full Colonel. Uh, he was a helicopter pilot uh, actually he did two tours in Vietnam. He was a tank commander, his first tour. And then he was a helicopter pilot. He flew Hueys and, and Huey Cobras in Vietnam. And, uh, he retired, um, in the late eighties back to uh, where he was from in Spokane, Washington, which is on the West. I always have to say Washington state, not Washington, the DC. And, uh, and we retired back to where he was from, you know, close to Idaho on the Canadian border uh, when I was a little kid and uh, I grew up there. So, um, you know, having a dad who was, who was in the army and, you know, in the late, in the late eighties, early nineties, when I was a kid, you know, the world war II veterans were still, fairly young they were in their 60s and my dad was in his 40s and you know the vietnam experience was still traumatic for america but things were starting to change and, and it, people were really celebrating the fact that that these guys went off and, and fought when their country asked them to so um there was an old show on tv called tour of duty and it was like the most amazing thing for me it was on cbs it was regular public tv but it was a vietnam wars like a vietnam platoon story following infantry guys just regular straight infantry guys and and uh that was what I played all the time when I was a kid growing up. Like I had all my dad hand-me-downs 
And like, I would make my mom take me to the army surplus store when uh, I had my allowance and I would buy new things and I would add it. I would outfit, you know, the neighborhood kids with like certain kit and be like, all right, you're the gunner. You're the, you're, you know, you're the rifleman. Let's go. We're going to do this. And, and we just play in the woods. And it was a time where you could go do that. I spent just hours and hours and hours in, in the woods um, just doing that. And so for me, like there was never an option really in my mind, whether I was going to join the military, it was just when I was going to join the military. Like I, I, I don't think I would have been the, um, the type of person that would have been very successful at college. I would have wasted a lot of money going to college. Um, so enlisting was, was really the option for me. And, uh, I have an older brother, um, who had joined the, the Washington army national guard. He's eight years older than me. Um, he, he joined the national guard. So when I was 17, he was still in, he was an E4, um, and our, our local guard unit was an infantry unit. And, um, he was, he convinced me like, you know, that's probably the, the best thing that you should do is join the guard. And, you know, cause you could join when you're 17 as a junior in, in, in high school. Um, it's, it's very similar, I think, to the, the territorials, the TAs in the UK. And you could join and you kind of do drill and you, you go one week in a month and you get to do these experiences and, and you get to have this, you know, you learn these things and then you go off to basic training and you go off to your job school. So I did that. And uh, I actually signed up originally. There was a, a scout platoon in the infantry uh, battalion. And it, it was a, a cavalry scout platoon in an infantry because it was, it was a mechanized unit. So they're Bradley. It was a Bradley battalion of, uh, of guard, but they had the one scout platoon. I was like, well, that sounds pretty cool. You know, like reconnaissance was a kind of a cool thing. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll do that. So I joined up originally as a, um, as a 19 Delta, as a cavalry scout. But when I was starting to kind of go drill with them and, and kind of see things, how things were going, I was like, well, this is pretty cool, but I like what the infantry guys are doing. And the, at the time, the U.S. Army, you could only go to ranger school if you had an infantry MOS, like an infantry job skill. Um, and a couple other ones. You couldn't go as a cavalry scout. They changed it uh, in the early 2000s, but you couldn't go. And I, I'd always wanted to go to ranger school. I was like, oh, that's, that's the best of the best. I want to do that. So I actually changed my MOS, my job, prior to going to uh, school um, to infantry. And then I ended up going to Fort Benning, Georgia. Um, I went through, we call it OSIT, which is one station unit training, where you basically, you go to basic training, and then one day your drill sergeant says, Hey, congratulations. Now you're in infantry school and nothing changes. <laughs> it's the same. It's the same drill sergeants. It's everything the same. They're like, Hey, now you're in drill sergeant, but you still suck. Or now you're, <laughs> now you're in, uh, you're, you're in, um, you know, infantry school, but you still suck. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. We you have to keep going. We have the same thing here for guys who are, who are entering the army and they're going straight to, to an infantry battalion. Uh, if they haven't gone to, you know, I forget what they call it. Junior leaders school or something like that it's called Har it's it's in harrogate in, in england um army foundation college harrogate that's what it's called um if you haven't gone there then you just go direct entry and, and you go and do your phase one and phase two in the exact same place and you, you know yeah. you don't you don't change accommodation you have the exact same yeah. instructors like it's all the same thing yep. and for for most of the guys going through it they, they have no fucking idea what phase they're in they don't even realize that they've i you didn't know, know until, yeah, yeah they, you don't know you finished phase one you just know that you're just waking up one day and fucking running to breakfast or you're you know you're you're going on uh, a training exercise you know yep. this this afternoon you're just fucking doing whatever you're told like you, you don't have a clue what's going on but um yeah we have this we have the exact same thing and how, how long is it for you guys it was about six months 
No, it's, it's nowhere near that here. Well, back in the time, back in the day when I went, so this was, this was 98. So this was uh, June of 1998 after I graduated my senior year of, of high school. Um, back then, so to be a regular infantryman, it was 13 weeks. So was that like three months almost roughly? Um, they've changed it. They've added stuff since then, but this was, so this is 1998. So this is over 20 years ago. And, but the difference was, so if you, if you were a regular army or national guard and you had a job that wasn't infantry, you still had to go to basic training, but there was different places you go to. So we went to Fort Benning as infantrymen and we would start learning infantry specific stuff week one. Whereas, you know, you still had the curriculum for basic training, but your drill sergeants were all infantry guys and they would adjust it. So you were learning things that would pay off later in, in, in training. Yeah. And you still had to do, you know, your basic PT, your, your rifle marksmanship, your, your learning how to wear the uniform, all that stuff. But then you would kind of, you know, go through it until you hit, you know, the end of infantry school where you do your, your one week field training exercise and, you know, your platoon attack and your platoon defense and your, all your NBC stuff. And then you would, you would graduate. And when I graduated, because I was in a mechanized battalion, I actually had to stay for two more weeks to learn how to to uh, learn how to work around the Bradley fighting vehicle. So you you take the Bradley, you you learn how to drive it, you learn how to basically back then everything was was uh, learning how to PMCS it. So preventative maintenance checks and services. Yeah. So like how to how to make sure it's not leaking oil, how to make sure it's going to start properly. So you literally did that for like a week straight you would walk around the bradley <laughs> and like look at the, the fm and be like in the tm be like okay this says it shouldn't leak from here is it leaking from there and you're like nope it's not all right check and you did that for like a week and then you got to you got to ride in the back of it they had this like this track set up out in the woods and it was like a mile long track and every every guy got to a turn take a turn driving it around this track and it was like crossing a little river and like going over a tree and like running on this. It was, it's like NASCAR, but in a Bradley, you're just yeah. like going around this thing and uh, everyone would be in the back and you get your turn, you climb out and you have to go down in the driver's hatch and you put the driver's helmet on and then you'd listen to the commander and you do your driving. And uh, that was literally the only time I ever spent in a Bradley my entire <laughs> career. Like, I never, even when I got to my unit, we didn't even train with the Bradleys. That sounds about was, right. Because I was a dismount. So like we, we, we never trained with them, but uh, so I did that, which was kind of cool, but because it was, you know, you were graduated basic trainings and infantry school. So you were an infantryman, you already had your blue cord, you'd already had your ceremony, but you still lived in the same basic training barracks with the same drill sergeants who still treated you like shit, even though you were already done. So, um, but uh, that was a cool experience. So I did that over that summer after senior year. And uh, when I got back, um, I got fortunate enough to work uh, full time with the National Guard uh, as an assistant to the recruiters. So, um, you know, most time when you join the National Guard, especially, you know, in the 90s, like there's nothing going on. There's no schools. There's no deployments. So guys would finish finish basic training in infantry school and they would come back and then they would be like, all right, well, I'm going to go to community college or I'm going to go work at this place. And then I do my one week in a month and, and, and that's it. Yeah. But I worked with the recruiters. So I was, uh, I was still a private at the time. And, uh, I would literally like, my job was to make sure that all their cars were washed. I would go pick up, 
pick up their lunch. But like I was wearing a uniform every day. I was getting paid. Yeah. Like it was great. And I would like if they had a um, if they had a recruit, someone they were, they were working to bring in, I would go pick them up, bring them back to the office or I would take them for their medical and then bring them back to the office and and all these things. It, and so they, I that those AGR positions they're, they're essentially just runners, aren't they? To, to yeah, keep to yeah. keep guys involved and to keep guys, yep. you know, ticking along with feeling like they're part of the military like yep. What what was the, what was what was the the atmosphere around 99 because it was obviously pre pre 2001, pre 911 and you know there was there's you know it's essentially peacetime. So what were you what were your thoughts and feelings about you know being being in the army at that that period of time were you were you ever oh looking God. forward to the on the horizon to think that you know you would ever deploy or ever have the career that you had? No. No. So this is 99, right? So like Desert Storm had only been 8 years before Black Hawk Down had been, you know, six years before, five years before, but those were so little and so limited. Like the last real experience that the, the army had had was, was Vietnam. And, and like everyone, like even my, even like the people in my family who had all, you know, been in the military had said like, oh, these things are never going to happen again. It's just, it's just, there'll be these really quick little insurgencies or these really quick little, like, you know, kinetic you know, 48 hours to, I mean, you think about Grenada, you think about Panama, which was, you had serious combat in both of those places. Yeah. Same thing with Desert Storm. Like I had an uncle who was a pilot for the army who flew intelligence aircraft in Desert Storm. And I remember writing him as a kid and like, he'd send me back pictures of him in their tent. And like the war was, you know, it's what, what it's actually the anniversary of it today, I think the invasion. Um, but like there was over so fast, like there was no real, infantry combat so i thought it would it would never happen i thought i would be training my whole life and and i was cool with that but i wanted to try to do the best and i wanted to try to you know i wanted to really uh experience military life i had heard all these stories about going all over the world and doing all these cool things um so it's a funny it's funny because so i'm i'm doing this job where i'm a recruiter's assistant and i'm taking a recruit down so we have in the in the u.s military we have this thing called meps which is the military uh, entrance processing center or station or whatever. And it's where you go from a civilian to where you, you do your medical physical and then you swear in and then you either go to a hotel and you ship out from there. It's like, it's like where you start being a, a service member. So I remember I'm, I'm uh, and I've actually been promoted at this time because I've been in the, I've been in the military or been in the guard for, for, for a little while. And I've done a lot of training exercises. Um, you know, I'd started to be, you know, understand what being an infantryman was. I was a dismount. So we did more regular infantry stuff. I wasn't involved with the Bradleys. You know, we were doing team attack, squad attack. Um, there was a couple guys that had been active duty for a while that came in. Nobody had combat experience, you know, all the way up the chain of command. It was just, it was just kind of like a, a thing to go do on the weekends. And, you know, you know, put camo paint on your face and you go shoot blank ammunition and you go attack the same guys over and over. And uh, you could see like piles of ammunition of brass where the, the previous support by fire had been You're like, Oh, we always set up our support by fire here. And you attack this bunker and it's, it's just over and over. So I'm in an elevator and I'm wearing my, um, I'm wearing my, my class B's, which was like our short sleeve dress shirt, our ribbons and like our dress pants. And I'm an E4 and I've got this recruit who's with me going into the national guard. And next to me is a Sergeant from the army. Who's an actual active duty army guard or actual army recruiter with a recruit. And so I, I leaned over, I looked and said, Hey, Sergeant, uh, 
can I get your card? I want to come join. And he, <laughs> he looked at me for a minute and he's like, are you serious? And he like can see that I'm a qualified infantry guy. I've got my blue cord. And, and I'm like, yeah, totally. And he goes, all right, here you go. So I, I went and saw him and he's like, well, um, this is easy. <laughs> he's like, I don't have to send you for a medical. I don't have to send you to basic training. I don't have to, like, he's like, where do you, was like, what do you want to do? I was like, well, I want to be an infantryman. He's like, okay. I was like, since you're already qualified, you know, you can only go to these four locations. And I was like, all right, what are they? He goes, you can go to Fort Campbell to the 101st. You can go to Fort Bragg to the 82nd Airborne. And I wasn't airborne qualified at the time. So there was no way I was going to Fort Bragg as a regular infantryman, not airborne qualified because yeah. I'd get stuck in some staff job. So I'm like, no, I'm all set. Would they put you, like, you, do you think they would have put you through um, airborne school before you, before they, they said wouldn't, you? they wouldn't? They would. So I would have been on some like core level staff as a driver. And I'm like, <laughs> no, I'm all set. I had enough smarts that time to know like that wasn't the right choice. And then the other choice was Korea for a one year assignment or to Fort Drum to the 10th Mountain Division. I said, well, I was like, honestly, tell me which one deploys. And he goes, dude, he's like, honestly, the 10th Mountain Division, they're all over the place. You know, they had been in Somalia in 93 during Black Hawk Down. Um, they're they're kind of, it was at the time, it was, a, it was a true light infantry unit in the US Army and there wasn't a whole lot of those around. Yeah. There was, you know, either, either you either mechanized you were air assault at the 101st or you were airborne. And there wasn't really a whole lot of just regular light infantry. And I was like, yeah, that sounds totally cool. Like send me there. I was like, I like the cold. Let's do it. So, uh, I, I went right across, uh, from, from, uh, being in the guard to the, uh, to the active duty. I did lose one rank. So I went back to being a private first class, which, you know, I really didn't mind. It, it wasn't a huge deal to me. Yeah. Um, so I, so I went to, this was March of 1999. I went to the 10th mountain division and I show up, which is really strange because a lot of times, like, and I'm sure it's the same in the UK, you get a bunch of guys who finish like infantry school and they go to their battalion all together. So I'm the only guy showing up to my battalion and they're like, Andy's an E3. So he's not like, he's not like a regular boot, but he's not like a team leader. He's like, what do we do with him? So they sent me to, uh, they sent me to, to B Company, 4th Battalion, 31st Infantry, the Polar Bears. And I got to the unit. It was like a Thursday evening, and they were getting ready to go on a four-day weekend. And I, I remember they're like, they're like, oh, you go to, go, to, go to Private Lee's room. So I go to this guy's room. I put my duffel bag down, and he's like, oh, hey, what's up, man? I'm out of here. I'm, I'm gone for the weekend. And he took off. I'm like, okay, well, sweet. Like, what do I like, what do I do? Like, where, like, he's like, Oh no, no, we'll, we'll be at PT on Tuesday. You're all set. <laughs> he, he left. And I'm like in this room all by myself. And I'm like, I don't know where the chow hall is. I don't like, and, and I don't know how it is in the UK, but in, in the United States, they put the infantry battalions like as far away from everything on post on base as possible. Cause like, that's where the big problems are. They're like, fuck those dudes, put them way over here. So yeah, it was well like, we we generally have uh, one base per unit, so like a, an infantry, oh, an infantry nice. battalion will will take like an actual base or a camp or whatever, and then no, no, that's no, just their, a... that's just their their uh, <laughs> you know their their own uh, base to look after, and it's you know it's completely individual to them. Um, and and some bases, some you know we have garrison towns where like they have mixed camps where you have like might have supporting elements in there with an infantry unit or. They might have like a brigade headquarters in there with a you know an infantry unit and they kind of share the camp 
but for the most case like each unit has got their own their own camp and their own kind of living space so it's all it's all individualized oh. to those <laughs> uh, I, I know how it is out in the states so you've got huge huge uh, military uh-huh. bases and it's kind of kind of shared and from speaking uh-huh. to guys previously they, they say the exact same thing like infantry you're stuck almost outside the wire <laughs> yeah it, it was like that so at Fort Drum at the time, there were six battalions of infantry in two, brig- in two brigades, and we were all lined up on a road together. And I was the fourth battalion down. So, like, the little mall, like the shopping area on base, was like a three-mile walk away. And this is March in upstate New York, so there's, like, two feet of snow on the ground. And luckily, the chow hall was – so each brigade has their own chow hall. So second brigade commando – the commando brigade – our chow hall was right outside our doors and I was in Bico. So it was like right outside the door. So I spent my first weekend in the active duty stuck in my room and I went to the chow hall and come back. I didn't go anywhere else. I didn't meet anybody because it was a four day weekend. So everybody was gone and my roommate. So he had a TV and a, and a VHS player in it. And the only fucking movie he had was the doors. So like I watched the movie, the doors <laughs> over and over and over. I fucking hate the doors now. So I just watched it over and over. And I remember like, I'm like, well, I guess this is what I wanted. So whatever. That would, so, have, that would have been pre-mobile phone and everything. You know, you've got a book, a yeah, book nothing, or a nothing, book or VHS. That's it. Nothing. And I couldn't even walk to like, I mean, at the time I was like, I think I was 19. I couldn't even get beer. I couldn't even do anything. Like, so I was eating chow <laughs> hall, coming back, just spending my time in my room. And I remember there was like, in the in the company area where the barracks were there was like a a tv room that had a pool table and i was like dude i I don't like i don't know what i'm supposed to do tuesday morning so there was one dude in there watching tv and i walk in and i found out later who this guy was but i was like hey um excuse me i'm i'm the new guy in in uh in second platoon and and uh where do we form up for pt in the morning (laughs) and he's like looked at me for a sec looked at he looked at me with like disgust and he's like on the fucking moon where the fuck do you think you'd form up <laughs> out back in the company area and i'm like okay cool roger that so i went back to my room and luckily my roommate came and i found out later this guy was a uh, a ranger regiment guy who got hurt he was knee four he was a team leader he got hurt on uh, a jump he was jumping in the 240 and broke his leg so he couldn't stay in ranger regiment and they sent him you know, sent him to a, a regular light infantry unit. And oh, he was my. just the most fucking miserable motherfucker in the world. Pick, and I just happened to tell him. Yeah, pick <laughs> the one dude that you don't want to bump into. And that's yeah, the guy exactly. you got. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, well, I'm just going to go out and, and you know. So so I, I spent um, my first formative months with the, uh, with the 10th Mountain Division there. And, and it was great because right away, like, it was, I met that, you know, that, that's uh Tuesday morning. I met my platoon sergeant and he was like, Hey, you know, welcome. He's like, we're going to do some train up. And then uh, we're, we're deploying in fall to Bosnia as a peacekeeper. So you're going to go back home on leave. I'm like, I, okay. I was like, I just left. I was like, but he's, yeah, he's like, no one's staying around here. So you got to go uh, get, get used uh, to active duty. You fucking, you got more leave than it, than anyone else in the, in the private sector. I know. And so it's like, I'm, I'm thinking like, oh, we're going to do all this training, all this stuff. And he's like, no, no, no. He's like, go home, go on, leave. <laughs> so I like turned around and went back home and I was like, hey, I'm, I'm here. And uh, so we went back, but, but I ended up deploying in the fall of 1999 to, to Bosnia, to uh, the former Yugoslavia as a peacekeeper um, in, in S4-6. 
um, which was a cool thing because at that time in the U.S. Army, like no one was getting real deployments. Like there were no you weren't unless you were special forces, you, you weren't going anywhere in the world. And so to get that experience where you're carrying live ammo and <laughs> what I what I call live ammo. So it's like six mags that you can't even fucking touch because there's tape over them. And like, you can't lock. That's fucking funny. That's a UN thing, isn't it? They put tape over the top of your mag. Oh my God. It was a NATO thing. NATO. It was, yeah. It, it was ridiculous. And I, I, I tell you, I was like, so I was a grenadier. So I had the two or three under my, under my rifle, but we thought it was a huge deal because they're like, here's your ammo for that. And they issued us, it was, I had four star clusters, like a loom flares for my grenade launcher. No live rounds for my grenade launcher, just fucking a loom rounds. They weren't, giving, like, they weren't giving you guys white force, no? No, fuck no. <laughs> it was parachute flares. So, so what's funny is they're like, oh, but you can't wear your, you can't wear your, uh, your vest for your ammunition because it's too aggressive. But you have to hold on to these, these flares. So I'm like, well, where am I supposed to put them? Like I have belt kit, but like I don't have like pouches for them. Because this is old army where you could only have two magazine pouches for your M- M- and this is a big thing too is we had just transitioned from the M16, the musket, to the M4. So everyone thought we were really special because we had M4s. We showed up in the Bosnia and we we uh, relieved a unit that had all M16s, and we were partnered with a mechanized unit of Bradley's out of uh, Fort Riley, so the first infantry division. So it was like one company of light infantry with three companies of mechanized infantry. And so we had M4s. We thought we were just like this, these like badasses, but we had our fucking magazines taped over and I had no place to put my flares. And it was like, oh, this is real world. Awesome. And uh, that was uh, that was the first little adventure with real ammunition yeah. in, my, in my weapon. Some, some of the bullshit stuff that you get in the, in the regular infantry that you just don't get with some of the guys I've spoke to previously, you know, those uh, SF guys, they, they can fucking do whatever they want. They can just basically well, get away and do what, with whatever they want. I was going on patrol and I had dark lenses on and I, <laughs> you would have thought that I was fucking taking a shit on the Queen's throne. You genuinely would have thought that uh, that's what I was doing by the reaction I got. It's like, who the fuck, who the fuck, I fucking told you, do not wear those black lenses. They're so aggressive to the local population. They're going to fucking hate us. They're going to think we're murderers. Yeah. I'm like, it's fucking black lenses. Like, I, I'm not going out, out here with it's fucking, a, with a spear <laughs> and a fucking, a, a painted war face from, you know, Braveheart yeah. or whatever. I literally got a pair of dark sunglasses on because For I'm real. a fucking point man. I, I, I want to be able to see and it's sunny. <laughs> so, but but you just like it's little shit things like that it's like you don't want to be too aggressive i'm like what about the fucking rifle or the lmg that i'm carrying what or the the saw what about the fucking guy cutting, cutting about with a fucking a lazima 66 on his backpack like surely my lenses and my glasses are the least of these people's worries so it, that that's like we we call it you know it's the peacetime army right and back in the day and when i when i first was in like that's what it was about so my, my division, they were one of the first units in the army to get the camelback, right? And this was before they were all high-speed camouflaged. It was literally the original camelback, which was a black neoprene case and the blue tube, the blue reservoir you put in it. So they issued them to us. And then they said, you have to wear them under your uniform top because it's not... <laughs> 
the same color as the rest of your stuff. I, I'm not kidding. And I so, believe you. I know. I, I know you're not kidding. I believe you. So we went to we went to like we had to go to Louisiana to JRTC to train before we went to Bosnia, and we were wearing these things like under our BDU tops, and then you have to put on your belt kit over the top of it, and it has the Y suspender, and it would push it off to one side. And you're like, this is just the most stupid thing in the world. You gave me this to use, and now you won't let me wear it <laughs> because you're worried about what our looks are like. And that was the time. It was like, like I said, you could only have two pouches on your – you had to have <clears throat> your compass pouch, your first aid pouch, which is the same first aid dressing that they had in World War One. Then you had your two magazine pouches, your two, uh, your two canteen pouches, and your butt pack on the back. And that was it. And then we would get issued bayonets. And if you were a, a guy that had a rifle, you could have a bayonet. And that was it. Like you could not put anything else on it. You couldn't look out of the ordinary. And uh, <laughs> it was crazy that we did that. And then we went to Bosnia. Um, we had flak jackets, not even body armor, just flak jackets. So just stopping, you know, fragmentation, no plates in them. And we would, they were the old school ones that had snaps that so you'd have to put your 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 harness underneath these snaps and then snap it back over and you'd wear this velcroed flak jacket and uh you'd, you'd wear it on patrol <laughs> and i spent uh i got you know I, I like to talk shit about the old army but i was with a bunch of guys who were straight hardcore infantrymen that had been doing infantry stuff their entire life as light infantry guys because they were coded for that when they joined so my squad, my team leaders, my squad leaders, my platoon sergeants, they were nothing flashy. There wasn't a ranger tab in sight. And these guys were, they knew the infantry life in and out because that's what they did for years, just trained light infantry stuff. And they'd been to Hawaii and they'd been to Fort Drum and they'd been to Fort Campbell. You know, they'd done these, these, these jobs where all you do is go out and these big exercises and train and do infantry stuff. And that's what I learned from these guys out on patrol. And, uh, you know, I got to see, you know, it set me up for success later on in life because I got to see a populace, you know, this is an Eastern European country that had been at war just three years prior and hated each other. You know, we were, we were past Tuzla. So we were, we patrolled up to the Serbian border on the Drina river and we saw a lot of fucked up villages and we saw a lot of empty villages, a lot of mass grave sites and a lot of turmoil, um, and it prepared me for later on in life because it was the real deal. And it was stuff that, you know, I remember, you know, being in high school, you know, seeing all the reports of everything that was happening in the former Yugoslavia. And, and you know, we didn't have the Internet. We didn't have mobile phones. We didn't have the stuff. So it's, it's everything was off the news. And, you, you know, you're like, oh, dude, those guys are fucking getting after it. You know, you're watching dudes with with belted ammo over their shoulders and they're just in an apartment complex, just, you know, ripping a PKM. Yeah. In, into a, a square and you're like, dude, those guys are getting after it. And, and so when you're there and you see that stuff and you're out patrolling every single day and we would have to go, we would have to go do weapons inventories of the units that were fighting, that had been <clears throat> fighting. So the guys inside Bosnia, we couldn't go into Serbia, but the guys that were inside fighting, you know, inside the, the, the militias, the, the Bosniaks, the Croats, the Serbs, we go inventory all their stuff and make sure they still had all their stuff. And then we would go out into the, out in the hillsides and, and we'd sit on these OPs from, for a month at a time that had all been like former 
Serbian outposts where they would control the area. And, and uh, we lived on one outpost. It was on top of a mountain. It overlooked the Tuzla Valley. There was an unexploded 500-pound Swedish bomb buried on top of this mountain because it had been a Serbian stronghold. And uh, the Serbians had moved all this anti-aircraft uh, weaponry on top of this mountain and then just leveled it onto the villages and just wreaked havoc. And, yeah. and they didn't give a fuck about, you know, any humanity. And the crazy thing was, so all the trenches, all the mines, everything was still there. Like you look down, we were one platoon on top of this mountaintop. Looking down, you see all the trench lines. You see everything. You see the barbed wire, the mines, the shell casings. Everything was still there. And the guy that worked for us, he worked for Kellogg, Brown & Root um, as like a groundskeeper on top of it, had been a Bosnian army commando who had attacked that hill multiple times during the war. And he explained it to us. He's like, yeah, the Serbian commander, with their command post was here. It was still there. And he's like, they would have to send, they were so cut off, they would have to send guys down in these trenches to get water and bring it all the way back up. But we would ambush them. And he's like, we, he's like the last time when we took the hill, um, the Serbian commander called in artillery on his own position. He's like, if I can't have it, no one can have it. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm 19 years old seeing this stuff, hearing this from guys that happened like three, four years prior. And I was like, this is fucking what war is, man. Like this is, this is infantry life. I was like, and it just like, it was so eye opening. Um, and we did, you know, we did these patrols and you're, it was, you know, we'd go down and do these foot patrols into like downtowns and, you know, the kids were out at the clubs and, and it was just such a surreal experience because, you know, we're not there as aggressors. We're just there to make sure that this asshole doesn't fight this asshole and that these assholes don't, don't drop bombs. How, how, and, how were you, how was this, uh, the U S army received by locals then? What was your impression on, on, of that? They were just glad we weren't the Russians. Um, <laughs> Fucking hell. Everyone would be glad that you're not the Russians. <laughs> So the, we did have Russians that were part of the, the peacekeeping force and they lived just up the road, but they would go in and steal everything because they were so fucking poor that they, it was ridiculous. They, we, we had to like ban them from like our shopping, like little stores on base because yeah. they would go in and steal everything. And uh, honestly, like the, 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 they were very happy we were there, but you could tell and you could just hear in their voice like, hey, it's cool. But if you guys leave, we're just going to go right back to it. Yeah. And it's like, it had been hundreds of years of just ethnic versus ethnic. And, and it was, it was, it was so crazy to see. And, you know, that spilled over to my career later on in the middle East and in, and in Afghanistan and even in parts of Asia, I worked where it's just, you know, coming from the United States where you think everything's hunky dory. Like I grew up thinking like it was all leave it to beaver. Like everyone's happy. Everyone loves each other here. And you go to these places where like, no, dude, that's my neighbor he doesn't have the same little thing over his last name I do. So like I'm going to throw a grenade into his, into his front lawn. Yeah. Straight genocide. If you're not, yeah. if you're not with me, genocide, it's like yeah. this shit is going on. Even, even this, even as early as like, like, like the nineties, this shit's going on. It's fucking yeah. insane. When you think back about it, you know, that stuff's actually happening within my life and within your lifetime. Like, like, and you know, even today, people don't realize that there's still genocide going on and there Everyone has been the a world, there has been genocide so going on every single year since fucking humans started uh, having war with each other places Absolutely. places in northern africa for instance libya you know central africa um you know places in the middle east it's you know murder and death is just the price of the day
you know, it's, you know people don't turn an eye um no. and you know maybe one of the things that like i like to highlight on on the podcast is, is when I, when this topic does come up is that i personally am so grateful that i don't live in a society like that you know as much as i believe that our our, our countries you know our western countries are killing themselves um you know at the minute you know i still know we've got it fucking the best in the world i still do believe that i know we've got it so good that we don't know how good we've got it it's almost like we've, it's almost like we've reached the peak and like because we're so successful that's starting to become our downfall yeah um you know we forget I, everything that was behind us getting to the top of that peak. well that, that's it they're, like they're trying to wipe out history now so like how can you remember the the hard times like how can you learn from those now if they're trying to wipe out history um trying to shut down speech and all this sort of shit but you know we're lucky that they are just trying to wipe history and they are just trying to shut down speech and, and they're not coming around with fucking yeah you know you know just insane fucking groups of people just wiping everyone out because that's what's happening in in places and you're lucky that you're not a slave that can be sold for 200 dollars, which uh, which is what i believe <laughs> the the average price is in libya at the minute for for a grown man it's it's just insane um, but I personally, I'm so grateful. I don't live in one of these countries and, and I do live in, you know, a Western society and, you know, live a happy and good life. I have the freedom to do this sort of shit. But yeah, even, even back then, like in Bosnia, you know, even, ha even just having the peacekeepers there, the Russians and they're fucking stealing off you. Like, come on, man, just give these guys a break. I know. So it was, uh, it was an eye opening experience and I was fortunate enough to just be able to just like, just breathe it in, man. And it was like, you know, you know, even as it, so like I said, like no one else was doing that stuff in the army because we had so little presence over there and it was units going for six months at a time. And, uh, you did patrols and it was a lot of vehicle mounted stuff, um, in up armored Humvees, which actually helped me later on in life in the military, in the army. But, you know, it was a great experience for a young guy because I got to cut yeah. my teeth seeing like what a battlefield can do. And, uh, and learning like, you know, just the operation side of it to where even on a platoon patrol, you know, you're, you're doing your operations order, you, you know, you're doing your warno prior to that. And you're getting, you're doing your, your, you know, your pre-combat inspections or pre-combat checks for real. Yeah. And you, it's getting ingrained to you as a, as a, as a young soldier who has a responsibility. And I was a driver, you know, so I was responsible for the vehicle to get everything set, which is actually another funny story is, <laughs> and I'm sure it's like that in the UK, you have to be qualified to drive every vehicle in the army. They're like, yeah. all right, you're, you're qualified on this, this variant of the Humvee, this variant. So I, I, uh, I woke up one morning and my platoon sergeant came in and says, congratulations, private college. And you're a driver. And he threw me a, uh, <laughs> a driver's license. And I was like, Sergeant, I've never been to driver's training. And he goes, we took care of it. And so like the driver's <laughs> training certificate had been before I was in the army <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And he's like, yeah. there's a convoy going down today. Get in that armored five ton truck and drive it down. And I'm like, uh, Roger that. <laughs> and so it's like, Fuck. you know, it's, that's the classic army stuff. Where yeah. Like, figure it out young buck. Yeah. Yeah. Go do it. I'm like, okay. Um, but we, we, when you were going out in patrols and stuff, we ever doing some, you know, some, cool stuff like setting up uh ops or um so we didn't have to do that as much because there were other units um there that did it 
like, but some of the stuff we did, um, like the, the most, I guess the most like infantry thing I did was I had a bayonet on my rifle and I was going through a, um, a, uh, a hay bale looking for <laughs> weapons caches. And I'm like, I'm like, this is, I'm like, this is real life. I'm like, I've sorting seen, through a hay bale looking I've, for weapons caches. I've seen this shit in a movie somewhere. I know. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, is this 1940 France? Like where, like where am I? And, uh, but, uh, no, we didn't do OPs. Our, our, ours was more of like a presence patrol and, and ours was, uh, because we were attached to a mechanized unit, it, it was more like, Hey, don't start shit because we're going to bring a really big stick yeah. to end that shit. Um, but, but you were patrolling tactically, tactically and you were, you know, yeah. it, it was all professionally done. It wasn't yeah, like we were absolutely. going out here just for a donder. Oh yeah. That's what, no, that's no, what no. I'm getting at. So a good learning opportunity then for you, would you yeah. say? Yeah, but it was, but it was all vehicle mounted. <clears throat> Because you really couldn't walk anywhere because that's one of the most mined countries in the world. And and that's how they did their wars. They would mine yeah. all these avenues of approach, so you just couldn't go there. So we did a lot of vehicle travels, and then we would do a lot of foot patrols inside of villages, um, like a dismount outside, walk in. We'd do some, you know, some dismounted patrols miles out from the, from the camp and uh, kind of go through. And then we would kind of rotate them in. We would have to go do, like, guard duty for one – you know, you'd, you'd be on guard duty for a week at the camp and then you'd be on patrol cycle and you kind of came in. You still had to do like those those normal everyday army tasks as well. Um, it was it was a great experience, like I said, because you learn so much from the tactical side of it, like how to set up operations and how to set up things. And, you know, you know, these are your these are your QRF frequencies. These are your emergency helicopter frequencies. And you kind of got to work in those. And I got to, that was my first real experience with special operations as well. Um, we would do this mission so that the army SF teams uh, would live out in the villages and they, their job was basically just to stop gun running. Yeah. And we would protect them as a QRF if their house got hit. Um, so we would do that like rehearsals with them in the middle of the night, they'd wake us up with the call word and we'd have to, you know, go out to our vehicles and we'd go reinforce them. Um, so it was kind of a, uh, a really, really cool experience in that too, is kind of seeing them, how they operated and, and just kind of like, I remember they brought us into their house one time after a, uh, a mission to do like a debrief. And these guys had like, you know, cases of, of, uh, like Cokes and like DV, like one of the, their VHSs, they had like hundreds of VHSs that they brought in like boxes with them and they had TVs and, and I was like, Whoa, like this is the living, you know, we had like a TV this big in our squad bay that we bought at the PX for like a hundred dollars. Yeah. And you know, that's it. And like, these guys were like living the life. So it was like, you, you know, awesome. you know how they got, you know how they got all that shit, don't you? They just put a little chit into the DOD. It's like, Hey, we need some money for, uh, oh, yeah. to, to manipulate this, this faction oh, absolutely. Of, of the fucking, absolutely. and it all just went in our TVs and fucking Coca-Cola. Yeah, and then they put it in like cases and they ship it down range. And, and, uh, and it was like, wow, that's, these guys are awesome. Yeah. And yeah. It, was, it was just a cool experience. So, um, what, what was it? What time period was this when you were deployed to Bosnia then? So this was 1999 to 2000. So I, I spent the millennium changeover in Bosnia. Oh man. How was that? Oh, so <laughs> this is another one of those stories that uh, that probably got me in trouble at the time. But uh, so there's a bunch of fucking infantry guys that are like, this is the year 2000. Like the world's supposed to end. We don't have booze. Like this is bullshit. Like we're going to drink. So 
some some brainiac realized that the mouthwash that you could buy at the store was like 26 percent alcohol fuck man so we did shots of of mouthwash and then chased it with mountain dew because it was so disgusting jesus and, uh, it was horrible it was, i i don't recommend it and it, it could probably kill you but uh <laughs> But it, yeah. it, it it did the task. So you're alive. No, would, so that's good. Yeah. No. So I spent uh, September of 1999 to March of 2000 in in Bosnia. Um, I did a I did a Christmas leave to uh, Budapest, Hungary. Damn. Um, they, <laughs> they bust us up there. So oh, I had really? all this I had all this money from my first few months, and they you stay at a five star hotel, and you get these leave trips, and what like one. Like one guy from each squad can go, and and ours got canceled because we had a huge snowstorm the week prior. And they're like, "All right, well, we'll reschedule you the following week." And it happened to be Christmas week, and uh, I got so fucking shit faced in in that city on on vacation. It was amazing. It was it was epic. Yeah, those those parts of uh, Europe, especially back in like late nineties, two thousand, man, they would have been fucking crazy places, and they're they're beautiful places as well. So and they're still they're still very hot places oh, yes. to go and visit as a tourist but i think back then they, they you know they weren't in the eu they weren't trying to be good nope. you know good boys and girls they weren't trying to play by the rules it was kind of nope. like the the wild west of, of of europe back back then it really was and and uh there were some places we went to that had bald guys with beard and leather trench coats at the door <laughs> and i'm like I'm, I'm like i don't think this is the place we want to be but uh it it, it was uh i will tell you it was an amazing time that uh had some very unique experiences in in that place damn <laughs> so talk me through uh we'll, we'll probably we'll just jump forward a little bit and talk me through september 11th talk me talk me through your day and where you were and you know how that transpired for you absolutely um so honestly so like we got back from bosnia and um we did some some regular training kind of went back to our green role and uh it was time for me to re-enlist i had made uh, I had made sergeant at the time, and I had gotten a slot and gone to to airborne school. So I was already a, I was a airborne qualified at the time. I wasn't a paratrooper, but I was airborne qualified. And uh, I really, really wanted to go to Europe. Uh, my dad had been stationed in Europe. Um, my cousin had been stationed in Europe in the in the, uh, the after the fall, like when the fall of the Berlin Wall happened. I had visited him as a kid, and it was just something I really wanted to do. But I did not want to go to a mechanized unit. I, there was no way. You know, I had I was a light fighter through and through, so there was an airborne unit uh, in Vicenza, Italy, and I re-enlisted with the option to go specifically to that unit. Um, so I I left Fort Drum, New York, um, in in uh, late July of uh, 2001. Went home for vacation, um, then flew to Italy, and I got to Italy in August of 2001, um, and this was the time the, the U.S. was actually building up its forces in Europe. <clears throat> so we had, at the time, there had been one battalion of paratroopers in Italy, and they stood up a second battalion. So I went to the second battalion, and I was one of the first sergeants in one of the, the line companies in, in uh, ACO, which ended up becoming Able Company, second battalion of the 503rd. Um, so we had, didn't have a lot of soldiers yet. We were still building. We were expecting this huge shipment of of uh, privates in from airborne school one day. 
So there had been guys that, that were E4s who were specialists from another unit. Um, the Army decided to get rid of its – every airborne unit had had a Delta company, a DECO, which was an anti-armor company. Yeah. And they had Humvees that they would drop out of planes with tow missiles to provide the punch for us on the ground as, as uh, airborne guys because we'd get rolled over by tanks. Yeah, eventually. well – well, you'd hold well, out for a while tank bust like with the tank buster missiles yeah, yeah 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 so the tow missile on top of the humvee so they, they the army got rid of those companies and so they took all the guys that were in the delta company and they brought them over into the new battalion as just kind of fill-in guys so i remember so i was i was on september 11th i was in italy and uh it was the middle like the middle of the week it was a normal day and uh you know, we'd gotten done, we'd done PT that morning, we'd done our work and uh, we're getting close to getting off. And I remember, so as a sergeant, we all lived in the economy. Like we had a house, I had my own house living in an Italian village and everyone below sergeant lived on base. And I remember one of the guys ran up and was like, Hey, you got to come, you, you, you got to come into my room and look at this. And all of a sudden, like that's when the second plane hit. And we're watching news that's on the Italian news because we can't get American channels. You know, we get spotty BBC and we get the Italian news channels and then we get the armed forces network. And we're watching these Italian channels and they're showing this devastation and showing this stuff as the towers are collapsing. And it's like, like even right now, man, like that day changed who I was forever. Right. Like, like that's the day I don't say that's the day. Like I don't count my birthday as my day I, I was born. Like I'll, I'll talk about that going to Iraq in a little bit, but like, that's the day I just showed up on the world. But like what made me who I became and, and like, and just changed the trajectory of not only myself, but the U S army forever was, was that moment. And I just remember feeling like just watching this in this barracks room, you know, feeling so fucking helpless. Like we all knew right away. We're like, our country's under attack. Like this is, this is our country at war right now. We knew it. And so right off the bat though, like we get recalled, we're still in work. And so we have to hard point all of our locations on Italy because they don't know if there's going to be follow on attacks. So we, for the next three weeks, so we start, like we're guarding the base, you know, this was before this was, this was the military police and the Carbonari, the Italian military police were doing it. But now there's infantry dudes, full kit, loaded weapons. We're guarding our ammunition stores. We're guarding anything that's potential targets. We're guarding 24 hours a day and we would do these shifts. And like, that's where my life began as a paratrooper in Italy. And then the, the worst, <laughs> so the worst part of my life, man, at that time had been realizing that the unit I just left in the 10th mountain division was the first unit into Afghanistan. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like literally the battalion I left went to Afghanistan was involved in operation Anaconda. And like, they were in, in, in theater. Were they, going, like, were they going there to support the, the SF units in yep. Torbora? Yep. Damn. <laughs> Fuck, bro, you missed it. <laughs> so I'm like, are you serious right now? So I remember I was devastated. And um and still, like back in the time, like, you know, I got a 
I, I must have called home and like just kind of like was depressed in my voice. And, and I got an, I got a letter from my mom, like an actual letter. <laughs> and it said, you know, it was like, I hope you're doing well. Like, you know, Italy sounds nice. And at the end of it, she just said, you know, don't dwell on things that could have been like the world in front of you is going to need you one day. And it was like, I didn't grasp it at the time, but it was like, like moms just know, right? Like they know, like I, she knew I was a, she knew I was an infantryman and she knew like, you know, my dad had been in Vietnam. They met when my dad was in Vietnam. Like my grandfather, like her dad had been in World War II. Like, you know, she knows the score, man. And like, she knows that her kid, that's what he wants to do. Like I did it as a kid. Like that's what I wanted to do. And I was just so gutted and devastated that these boys that I, I had been with were now over there, you know, getting trigger time. Hey, that, hey that, that recruiter, he warned you. He said, those guys go first. Exactly. And I was like, <laughs> oh, man, I wanted to live the European lifestyle. And uh, so, you know, that time passed and, and I never forgot it. But like everything changed, man. Like we became so, like I said, we were a brand new unit. And at the time in my platoon, like only people in my platoon were the sergeants. And then all of a sudden we got this huge influx of, of privates and we started training and we just trained. We would have to go to Germany to Grafenbeer to train, to do all our ranges. And then we would go to Hohenfels in Germany to do all of like our maneuver exercises because we couldn't do them in Italy. They had this like weird rules about what we could shoot and, and how we could do it. But I remember this was right about the time that Band of Brothers came out. Um, and, you know, a lot of people didn't understand the job of a paratrooper prior to Band of Brothers because they're like, oh, these guys jump out of planes and hit the ground. But like, you know, like what's a paratrooper supposed to do? And I think like the, the opening few episodes when they're in Normandy and you see just these small groups of paratroopers, we call them, we call them LGOPs, little groups of paratroopers. Like your job is just to go and wreak fucking havoc and do whatever you can do to fuck the enemy up. And we trained for two years to do that from the, from the team to the squad, to the platoon, to the company live, live fires, that was our mission. And we would go, you know, a month at a time to Germany and live with these guys and train. And all the other sergeants had all come from, I was the only guy that had come from the 10th mountain. Most guys had come from the 82nd and already been paratroopers. But like, we had this ethos of like, our job is to close with and destroy the enemy at all costs. And we instilled it in these group of young soldiers that went on to do amazing things in the future for the U S army. And, uh, you know, we got the call, um, in early March of 2006, like we knew the invasion of Iraq was going to happen. And, uh, 2003, we, in two, uh, yeah, sorry, 2003, March of 2003, I was in Afghanistan in 2006, but in March of 2003, like we, we knew like the buildup, you knew it was going to happen. Like from Christmas on, like you knew this was going to happen. It was a fight. Of, of two two kids in the in the school parking lot you know they were gonna fight and we started transitioning for that like they issued us desert kit and we got all of our anthrax shots and our smallpox shots and then you know all of a sudden you know march 19th march 20th the war happens and i'm still in italy eating fucking pizza and I, <laughs> and I thought it again i'm like are you serious like are you serious right now? Like, this is, this is happening. Like, this is, I'm missing it again. 
And you know, you watch. I'm I'm on news watching it. Yeah. Like I'm, we're watching the invasion happen. Um, and then on on March 24th, you know, we got a phone call that said, "You're come to work. Get your kit. You're not going back home." We're like, "All right, cool." So I, you know, I was uh, engaged to an Italian at the time who I was living with, and I told her, "I was like, look, I, I don't know when I'll be back. I don't know. Like, I'll be in touch." And I went to base. They took the keys to our cars. They took all of our personal information, and then they put us in lockup. They they had overnight. They had erected fencing on the football field with tents that was gated. And once we went in, we couldn't leave. And then we got the orders that we were we were parachuting into Iraq. Um, the the Turkish government had denied access to an entire armored division to their ports that were supposed to come down in the north of Iraq to secure northern Iraq and, and to Crete. And uh, we were the only option. And this is something very, very interesting to me is because I never knew that anyone had ever parachuted into Iraq. You know, did some SF guys do some halos or halos? Of course they did. But I never, I never knew there was infantry doing jumps in, in Iraq. Um, but so how the hell was that for you then so you feel you miss you miss the early 2001 in afghan you miss the start the ground invasion of, in iraq and then a couple of days later you're like right guys you are now getting you're, going. A, you're getting after it fucking big time yeah. so you know there had been there had been a, a ranger company that did a jump into afghanistan and there had been a range i think there was a ranger company that did a jump out west to seize a, a, a dam or the Hiawatha dam or something like that yeah. in Iraq. But uh, for us, it was like, all right, it's go time, man. So earlier, like the year prior, we had been in Germany training and we got alerted because the Ivory Coast had kicked off. Some rebels were, were overrunning the, the downtown and they, they, had, they had alerted us to do a jump into the Ivory Coast. So we went and quarantined and and or contained ourselves and got our maps started getting weapons ammunition drawn because we were going to jump in to secure the u.s embassy because that was part of our role in europe that's what we thought yeah we weren't like a long time stabilization force we were like a quick reaction force and we had done these missions prior for years so that show from when i got there after september 11th you know we jumped into to old russian airfields in hungary poland czechoslovakia or czech republic to do these like seizures and like these evacuations of like embassies, like that had been our bread and butter. We trained it all the time. And so when we went into containment, it like you start getting maps and GRGs and and we didn't have any ammunition because we had to go to the airfield for that. But it's like, it became real. Like these are your mission sets. This is this, this is this, like this is our option because they can't bring the armor in through turkeys. They said no. And then we, we got on buses in the middle of the night and we drove to, to Aviano Air Base in Italy, which is where our Air Force Base was. Where, and I, we pull up, and there's like 20 C-17s lined up. And 10 of them are the jump birds, and all the rest are for like heavy drops of our artillery, you know, our, our parachute artillery, our Humvees, all Mobility, that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and it, and it took a presidential order to get that much of the U.S. Air Force's assets in one location. It was like half the assets. Yeah. All lined up. We're like, well, fuck, this is for real. And uh, it was middle of the night. They, they drove us over to the Air Force Chow Hall where they had steak and lobster. And we're like, 
<laughs> Hell right, fucking so, yes. So we're like, all right, this is for real. And then we, we the next next morning, we kind of sleep where we're at on this big field. And then we go get ammunition draw. And they're like, all right, all squad leaders come up. And they had it broken down. I was a rifle squad leader at the time because my actual, I was, a, I was a sergeant, I was an E5, but my actual rifle squad leader had hurt himself about a month prior skiing in the Alps. God damn, he, living the good yeah, life. He had torn his knee. I was with him. He was shit-faced on grappa, <laughs> but he had torn his knee and he couldn't make the jump. So I was the acting acting squad leader. Sounds about right. Yep, that's how it works. So they they uh, they said, "Hey, squad leaders, come up, draw your ammo." So you come up, you get your initial load for your five five six. You get frag grenades, smoke grenades, claymore mines, everything. So we know it's the real deal when they're breaking out all that stuff. And they're like, "All right, riflemen, come up. All right, grenadiers, saw gunners, uh, two forty gunners, everything." And they're like, I had a guy who had to jump in the javelin. Like, we got live missiles for the javelin. Javelins in 2003. We did. They had just been fielded. God damn. Oh, yeah. So a guy had to jump that. (laughs) So he had to jump the clue and he had to jump the missile. So, and then they're like, okay, we've got extra. Come up if you want more. And so we're like, we have no idea what to expect. So I'm like, all right, I'll go grab a couple of boxes of tracer. I'll I'll grab a couple of boxes of 5.56. Can I just quickly ask? Do yeah. you do you ever get a chance to practice jumping with something like a clue and a javelin? Because I, I would yeah. I would imagine that I would imagine well in the UK well, I would imagine that they they do, but back in maybe two thousand and three I don't imagine that these guys would have. So you do you have to get certified, but in order to get certified, you jump it out of the thirty four foot tower on base. So we have this thirty four foot tower that has these cables that come down, and it you exit like you're exiting the aircraft and it slides you down. Right. So you put it on your rig and you jump that. So the guys had been qualified to not only jump that, but we had like, we had stinger missile guys that jumped those as well. And then we had AT fours. Um, and the guys like they practice jumping like the two forties, you know, the G- GPMGs, like all that stuff. And you just practice out at the 34 foot. It's basically your exit. Yeah. Once you're under, once you're under canopy and you land, it doesn't matter because you're going to lower your rucksack and your equipment below you anyway. Um, and so, is that is that attached to the equipment or is that attached to you? Yeah, so like that, it's attached to the equipment. So that drops before you, right? Yeah. Okay. So Damn, that's cool. uh, well, the the GPMG like the the gunners and stuff that's attached to them. Yeah. Like our M4s, our weapons, our primary weapons are attached to us. So they they kept saying like, if you want more, come up and get it. So I had extra frags, I had extra smokes because I, I don't you know, you don't know what you're going to expect. So it's like, all right, well, I'd rather have, you know, an extra bandolier of ammo in my rucksack in case I need it or an extra smoke or an extra whatever. Um, And then we go and get parachute issue. And uh, we don parachutes, which is something we don't, you know, you train with all the time, but you don parachutes over your equipment. But what we had never done before is we had to take our NBC gear, our our chemical gear. Yeah. And we had to carry our gas mask because it was a huge threat we had no no idea what saddam was going to do so we had never jumped with our gas masks so your gas mask you have to pull in front and like wear it over your crotch and then put your parachute on on top of that and like half of my rucksack was my chemical suit so like <laughs> i didn't have very much going with me i had a my, my whoopee you know like my poncho liner my wet weather gear some food yeah and then i had this giant kim gear in my rucksack and then i had all the ammunition and all the like the claymore and stuff on top of that so we, we don our ruck, we don our, our parachute harnesses, and now we have to go out to the aircraft, which is like a hump away, dude. And so now like 
you're rigged up and you get inspected by a jump master to make sure your shoot is safe. But what's different is we're not going to rig our rucksacks yet. So normally, normally on training jumps, we hang our rucksacks off of our equipment and then our, the jump master checks that as well. And then you just sit down and, and you, you know, you just wait and then you get on the aircraft and go do your jump. But it's such a long flight from uh, Iraq into, or from Italy into Iraq that they're like, we don't want to have them wear their rucks because it'll be just too much. Because these things were fucking heavy. Yeah, man. Like some fuck, like, yeah. live mortar rounds, like, you know, guys are jumping the mortar plates. They're, it's just heavy ass rucks. And so we, some guys get, get to get on these like little trucks and they haul them out to the, the flight line. But like, we walked out to our flight line for where our chalk was because I was chalk 10. So I was the 10th aircraft. So it was actually like the last aircraft, which was closest to us. So I walked out with a hundred other guys. Each aircraft had a hundred paratroopers. God fucking damn. That is a thousand that's dudes, awesome. man. How, how much is it? How well, well known is this throughout, throughout, you know, the, the military is, is in, in the States. It's a very, it's a very little known piece of the invasion because so much was happening around it. Yeah, and man. No fuck, one, I've never ever heard of this. Yeah. So no one ever, no one ever really knew it. It went on. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was like, it was like, I think we actually, so this is the word. Luckily I wasn't one of these guys, but there, I think there were, the total was there was 963 jumpers that got out because some guys, they turned on the red light because they ran out of drop zone before they could get out of the aircraft. Really? So they had to fly all the way back to Italy and knew that they weren't on the ground. So, you know, we jock up and we actually get on the aircraft and we're still thinking like always in your mind, you're like, all right, this isn't really happening. Yeah. Like this isn't really going to happen. And I remember like some of the air force guys that were on the aircraft were like, Hey, go ahead and smoke if you want. And guys were like, you're in an air force aircraft smoking cigarettes. They're like, all right, this is really happening. Like, <laughs> yeah. This is the fucking, that's when you know, the, this is the real deal, right? Like this is, this is going to happen. But, um, so like, I was funny cause I'm, I'm sitting in my, in my chalk, you know, it was a hundred guys. And, and, we had learned experiences from world war two that when you do a pair drop like that into combat, that you don't put the same unit all in one aircraft because in the Normandy invasion, they would lose one aircraft and it's the entire platoon, like headquarters platoon from a company. Like you're losing yeah. the commander, the XO, the first sergeant, the radio. So they, what they do is they have, they, they do all this like math and they figure out on the drop zone where your unit's supposed to be. And they cross load you into the aircraft for where you come out of the aircraft is supposed to be closer to where you're at. So right. across these 10 aircraft, you have, you know, all these dispersed, these guys. So the only guys from my platoon were like right next to me. And the, um, I'll never forget. It was a guy named Kyle Thomas who was to my right. He ended up dying uh, in Iraq later on. Um, he jumped with me and it was my roommate who jumped with me on my left side. And uh, like his saw gunner, and just a couple guys in our stick that were supposed to land really close together. But jumping across from me was our chaplain. And I was like, well, I guess that's, that's key. You got to have one of those guys on the ground too. So that's either good or bad. So we had the chap, <laughs> we had the chaplain jumping with us. Um, so we, you know, we get in the flight and we're flying and, and, you know, nerves are up and, and the lights are red lights on the, it's all red on the inside of the aircraft. And our jump master gets up and, you know, we hang our rucksacks at this point. And we're standing up and the air, the way they did it because they kind of wanted to like fool 
Iraqi radar and Turkey because Turkey still didn't know we were doing this. Yeah. So we, we had to overfly Turkey, which was illegal. They got the U.S. had some State Department issues with us leaving from Italy, going to war in Iraq and flying over Turkey. I remember <laughs> we had F-15s escorting us in case anyone got froggy. But uh, we're flying. We're standing up now, getting ready to jump. We're 20 minutes out. And we're at like commercial altitude. We're at like 30,000 feet. And we jump from like 700 to 1,000 feet. And that was the plan. Once they crossed into Iraqi airspace, they were going to drop to that 1,000 feet. And they did. And they were flying up here. All of a sudden, the aircraft's doing this, and we're going down 30,000 feet to that 1,000 feet. And I remember the door opening, and my jump master, you know, stuck his head out the aircraft, looking around, and he stepped back in and looked at us. And then, you know, he gave the middle finger out the door to Iraq. And Fuck I was like, all right, ass. fucking rights. This is, this is it. You know, this is it. He's an old, he was an old Ranger Battalion guy. And uh, it was like, all right, this is, this is fucking go time. And the red light was on. And then all I remember is the red light going to green light. And the train in front of me started moving. And uh, as that train, I was jumper, I was right door, chalk 10, jumper number 25. So I was halfway in the stick. And then I was going towards the door. And then all of a sudden I was in quiet and I'm in the pitch black and I'm out under canopy over Iraq. And, uh, I was like, wow, this is fucking sick. Yeah. Like this is the real deal. And it was quiet and I landed. Um, my parachute came down. Um, the first thing I realized was I lost my gas mask on the jump <laughs> and I was like, well, this sucks. There's probably like a thousand gas masks just fucking all <laughs> just over the scattered, desert. Yeah. Just scattered about. And uh, I remember I was like, this is supposed to be Iraq. And we landed in mud and it was tilled up farm fields in, you know, late March in Iraq. And it was all mud yeah. and it was torn up. So I was like all soft. And now I'm soaking wet in desert uniform in March. It's like 45 degrees. And uh, I'm like, I don't have a gas mask. So the second thing I remember is like, all right, dude cut a piece of your parachute off. So I cut a piece of my parachute. I shoved it in my pocket just so I could keep it for later on. And then I got out of my parachute, put my weapon into operation. And, uh, I looked up and I'm all right, well, I'm by myself. So I have to go find my assembly area. Couple of, so, couple of questions before we get yep. to, to advance. All right. Jumping out, jumping out the aircraft. Then, uh, it's, it's a quick draw. It's, it's a short period of fast. time, but yeah, it's fast. Super so, fast. I'm going to guess that you're too preoccupied to fucking shout across to one of your buddies or even like for guys to talk mid flight. Nope. So that, uh, that never talk happen. because you train, you train, yeah. it's always quiet. And, but, uh, but is there surely one guy that's just like, fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I never heard it because what you hear is when you leave the aircraft, the only thing you end up hearing is so per like our training, you count to 4,000. So the moment you step off the aircraft door, you count to 4,000 because if your main chute doesn't open by 4,000, you have to pull your reserve chute because yeah. you only have like two more seconds. So you're always like, I'm a guy that can't do it in my head. I have to count it out loud. So all you hear is like the jet engines and you're like one, 1,000, two, 1,000. So I hear three, 1,000, four, 1,000. It's me yelling it to myself. <laughs> and I'm like, check canopy, look up like, oh, sweet. My parachute's up. So like, that's the only thing you hear. Yeah. And by the time my parachute opened, like, I don't know the official altitude, like our aircraft was at, I know they were staggered 
But like by the time my parachute opened and I did my canopy check to make sure I'm good, no one's around me. Like I looked down and I'm like, I released my rucksack, which is 35 feet below me. I lowered it and then I hit the ground so fast because I had jumped more weight than I'd ever jumped before because we jump in training, you jump with blanks, but you're only jumping a couple mags. You know, you're not jumping live frags. You're not jumping mortar rounds, claymores, and I'm, all that. I'm sure, I'm sure in training they have a maximum safety weight to what you're allowed to yeah. jump. And obviously yeah. real, real time, it's, it's just whatever the fuck you weigh. That's what you're jumping with. Uh, second question then about that, that, that jump. Do you still have that piece of parachute? I do. Good man. Do. And then what is the, what's the procedures for you to, to orientate yourself on the ground and find, find you where you're meant to be? So we have uh, tactical assembly areas on the ground and every unit. So you remember there's a thousand guys jumping. Everybody has a mission, right? And we have to clear the, so we jumped on an airfield. And our purpose was to jump the airfield to, to secure it in order for follow-on forces to use that airfield to bring tanks and all that kind of stuff in. Yeah. And so there had been special forces guys on the ground already who were like the Pathfinder elements and some Air Force combat controllers. They just walked the DZ. Yeah, yeah. And they had come up from the south um, using helicopters, like the, the special operations helicopters. Yeah. They'd come way up and marked all that stuff out so we could come in. Um, so pre-brief, you know, you learn what your objective is and every, every, so this is where like that LGOP, the little group of paratroopers comes into, to, to existence is because every group has a mission set. And my mission, I had a road, road intersection that I had to secure at all costs to keep people from getting into the drop zone and getting into the flight line. So I was to go to my, so my platoon, which is uh, four, four squads. So three rifle squads and a gun squad. That was our platoon mission, but the minimum requirement was a squad leader, a fire team, and a machine gun in order to secure that drop zone, yeah. to secure that road road intersection. So the first group that made it to the assembly area, the first squad leader from uh, third platoon, that was his job. He would gather whoever he had, and he would go off and do that. Um, so I'm heading this way, and people are heading this way. So I'm the only one heading that way, and I'm like, this is I'm following my compass. Like I know where I'm at. Yeah you guys are fucking lost or like whatever. So they're all going to their own mission sets. Right. And so it was a, it was a slog, man. It was, it was ankle to knee deep mud the whole way. Um, I got to the, I, I, got I can to just the, imagine how much of a shit show that is. It's like you hear, you hear someone rustling towards you. Like, who's that? <laughs> and you're under night vision and you're like, hello. Yeah. And you're like, you give them the call sign, counter call sign. It's like, have you ever seen the longest day, like the World War II invasion of Normandy movie? Uh, like, pro- probably, I, I can't oh, really remember. Great movie, but that's what they're doing. They're like thunder, yeah, flash. yeah, oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You're calling back and forth, and you know. So I get to the assembly area, and I was the first squad leader from my platoon there. And I go to my company commander, and I was like, "Hey, sir, you know, starting call it in third platoon. I'm up. Like, this is this." And I'm like, "Oh yeah. <clears throat> By the way, I lost my gas mask on the jump." And he's like, "Okay." He's like, well, if we get hit, just throw your poncho over you. You'll be good. And I'm like, what? That's I'm a like, great SOP. I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> I'm like, whatever. So we were so, um, we were, it was such hard trekking to the assembly areas spread out over this drop zone because this drop zone was huge. So normally, like, you're, you're, we're doing like 30 second drop zones where the aircraft flies for 30 seconds and you're kicking paratroopers out. This was a 60 second drop zone. So the aircraft is flying for one minute, starting with jumpers, going for an entire minute. 
dropping jumpers out. So that's a huge drop zone. And they had to immediately bank and pull up because they would have hit the Iranian border um, if they didn't. So it's a huge drop zone. So there's guys all over the place. So we get to our assembly area. I'm the first guy there. I gather up the men and force requirement and I move out to this road road intersection and you know I do the mission. And then the next day, I actually found my gas mask on the drop zone because we went back past where my parachute was and I found my gas mask. But uh, we assembled and we like secured the DZ and they started bringing in planes like nonstop from that night on. And we just kind of started digging in, you know, shell scrapes, fighting positions and secured the outside while they brought in this massive amount of equipment, like, uh, you know, towed artillery pieces, um, all kinds of stuff to get us in the fight later on. And so what, how, how, how is that? How is that manifested by C-17 landing, unloading, flying off again? Yeah. In the middle of the night. Yep. In the middle of the night, they would land, keep their engines on, do a quick turn. So that's another part. It was, which is people don't know is we had this air force unit that was with us on the jump and their, their job was to set up flight lines. Like the guys that take the stuff off the plane with a forklift, like they jumped in with us yeah, and they, they set it all up and then they, you know, do all that kind of stuff. Um, so they had set, they were starting to set all that up and we had a pretty good corridor and we're in the North of Iraq. We're in, in the uh, Erbil area, um, Bashir drop zone in Kurdish territory. So, you know, the war is, is progressing. So we jumped on the night of March 26th. And that's what I say is I count that as my, my, that's my birth date. Because that's the day, like, everything else ceased to exist. I, I became uh, a rifle squad leader in combat. And Shit it was got like, real. Yeah, and it was the most, it's the most taxing job you can ever have is to be in charge of other dudes' lives based on your decisions. And it was so unique at that experience. And so this is, like, we didn't have body armor. Like, we didn't jump body armor. We had loaded our body armor on the outside of our duffel bags that were air landed later on, like, like a week and a half later. So we spent our first few days in Iraq without body armor. I bet, you, it just, I bet you fucking loved it. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it was, all I'm rolling around with is my belt kit and a helmet. It was dude, great. Dude, there's days in Afghanistan. I was like, fuck this, man. I don't even fucking need this. Like, mm-hmm. I'll get rid of the helmet. I'll get rid of the body armor and I'll take my chances. I do not need this fucking 100%. weight. Hundred percent, man. Imagine I got shot in the chest. I'd be, I'd be, I know. I'd be a fucking dumbass uh, <laughs> I if, I, if I allowed that to happen. But um, how did the how did the the rest of that Iraq mission go for you then? Once you once you had your uh, your mission established on off so the this jump. is the so this is the crazy part, right? Is they told us like, hey, you guys are going to be in Iraq for thirty days because you're a quick reaction force. Your job is to secure the drop zone. You know, we might have you do a couple other things. Like, we, I, they only gave us. Like I didn't even have desert boots because they didn't have my size when we went to, to draw them. So I had like, I had my like leather hiking boots on that we used for the field in Europe. And I had one extra set of desert uniforms in my backpack. And they're like, you guys will be here 30 days. That's it. And so they're like, well, now we have this group of, we have this thousand paratroopers in the North, like, and, and the purpose of us jumping was to basically scare the shit out of Saddam. Yeah. And it worked. Because when we were on CNN, there were, there were cameramen in the aircraft with us. And so Saddam woke up and saw on international news that a thousand paratroopers had just landed in northern Iraq. He sent five divisions from the north of Baghdad to go protect Tikrit, which is 
what led to the rest of the army sweeping around Baghdad coming in from the north because it was all the divisions had left to go guard, you know, to crit. So that worked in the, the purpose of the paratrooper worked. We infilled were a force that was there to wreak havoc and it did. And then he sent all these troops up. So then they're like, well, all right, well, what are we going to do with these guys? So they loaded us on uh, five ton trucks that had come in and we're like, you know, a platoon in each truck riding in the back of these trucks. We start convoying south and every night we would stop. We would dig fighting positions and dig foxholes and we'd watch the bombers and the fighters go overhead and just knock the shit out of the Iraqi front lines. And then we'd go past the Iraqi front lines the next day and do the same thing. We'd see these trench lines and all these tanks that were destroyed and all this shit from the night before. And we just kept advancing and advancing. And then finally they said, all right, your mission is to take the, the city of Kirkuk, which is uh, the second largest oil producing area in Iraq, in northern Iraq. And uh, they actually, the, the Iraqi Republican guards and the, the Ba'athists had blew up the oil wells. So we could see them from from miles and miles out, they were burning these oil wells as we were advancing. And we, uh, you know, went into these oil wells and we'd go in every day and we'd, we'd clear out these Iraqi uh, army bunker positions and trenches. And, you know, you're doing infantry stuff, man. It was like moving in, securing a trench, dropping thermite grenades down, you know, barrels of artillery pieces and tanks and making sure everybody's dead in there. And uh, we'd roll on. And, and the Kurdish had been before us. They... The, the Army SF guys did a great job with the Kurdish units, and they kind of organized them and said, you guys go ahead of us, and we don't care what you do, just do it. Yeah. And they've been persecuted for so long from the Iraqi military and Saddam that they just went in and they destroyed these guys with the help of our Air Force and Navy just dropping bombs. And they, we'd see them coming back through our lines, you know, driving a T-55 with a Kurdish flag hanging <laughs> off it. And dudes rolling in Mercedes, like, hey, what's up? You know, driving past this. And we would go down. Dude, uh, dude, fucking hell. Big up the Kurds. I love those boys. Me and too. They, they, out of that whole region, are the only ones that seem to be on side with the Western world. And they get it fucking yeah. rough because of that. Yeah. Um, but those guys are some fucking hardened fighters, especially in this period right now. You know, they've, been, some... they've been fighting nonstop for, oh, yeah. for close to 30, 40 years. We had long, some great experiences with those guys. They're amazing people, an amazing culture. Um, I, I have a Kurdish flag that I got, and it, it, like I'm, I'm really respectful of that culture and those people. They're hardened fighters, and, and they did some stuff, man. And, and uh, you know, this was for us. It was, it was a time where we didn't have vehicles, we didn't have anything. So they hired local Kurdish like flatbed drivers, and we jumped on the back of flatbeds and drove <laughs> down the highway. Then we'd get off and we'd go clear out these Iraqi army bases. And we go into Kirk, and we we got the assault on Kirkuk. You know, we took our our uh, our company's job was to take over the government building. So you're doing you know traditional, you know infantry tactics in an urban area. We're clearing these things, and you know, luckily it wasn't kinetic. There wasn't anybody shooting back at us, but there were there were groups of of Iraqi military that were still hard fighting and still standing, and you know we had to clear every single piece, house by house street by street, you know, building by building. And uh, we got in and we cleared out the government building and we kind of positioned it uh, there for a minute. And then we went and cleared out the, the big air base that actually is still a huge air base for allied forces in, uh, in, uh, in Iraq, the Kirkuk air base. Um, 
the Iraqis had abandoned it, but all their stuff was still there. They left all their anti-aircraft fire, all their all their anti-aircraft equipment with with ammunition still in it. They had dragged uh, old broken tanks and infantry fighting vehicles on the runway, so we couldn't use it. Um, they they done the exact same thing with ISIS as well. They just left all of their equipment for yep. ISIS to just yep. consume um, and make use of, and all that stuff that they had in two thousand and fourteen, thirteen was all american military stuff they'd they'd been given it by them by no. uh nato or whoever or the the u.s to help them yeah. fucking police their and you know protect their country and then they had isis roll up and just oh we're coming all right and all the iraqi army just they fled and just left all that shit to, to isis and because because of that gave them such free reign because they, they were so um they were so outfitted with good technology and good equipment um that they could just fucking thrive for a couple of years before before uh you know we got the job done in, in the end uh thank god but what was the what was it your highlight then from from jumping in iraq and you know what what were some of the unique experiences that that you remember from there other than the, the jump itself so uh you know real quick i'll just say like you know we we, we were supposed to spend 30 days there and then they extended to 60 days and they extended it to 90 days. I ended up spending one year in Iraq. Um, <laughs> two pairs of two pairs of uniform. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it was literally my brother had gone to my brother had commissioned and was at Fort Benning doing his infantry officer school. And I called him and said, dude, go to the fucking Ranger Joe's, buy me two desert uniforms, put my name on them and send them out here. <laughs> and he did because we didn't have it. it was, That's insane, man. It is insane. Yeah. It's crazy. So, um, you know, some of the good experiences, I mean, overall I learned a lot because it was, it, you know, I left, I, I was there in 2003 in the invasion and I, I left in March of 2004 as things were starting to get hot again. Um, you know, we still got into, we still got into it. My battalion lost nine guys, um, throughout that time. You know, mm -hmm. the guy that I mentioned who jumped next to me, Kyle Thomas was killed, um, in an IED incident. Um, and this is, so we didn't have armor on our vehicles either. Like we were driving around in Humvees with no doors. We were driving around in Humvees that were the pickup trucks with the, with the troop seats in the back with a machine gun mounted in it. Um, and I transitioned to a support platoon halfway through um, because of my, I got in a little bit of trouble with alcohol because they let the boys drink a little bit, but uh, neither here nor there. But I transitioned <laughs> to the support platoon um, because of my experience in Bosnia from vehicles. So I became a gun truck section sergeant and was running, you know, convoy operations in vehicles that, that didn't have armor. And my driver would put sandbags in the wheel wells just in case we hit anything. But at that time, you know, speed was our security. We would go so fast they couldn't hit us. Um, and we would drive all across Iraq doing all kinds of, you know, route reconnaissance and, and, uh, you know, vehicle recce operations where we were, you know, you know, going off on the sides of the roads up into the hills looking for, you know, where people would ambush from and, and uh, ahead of other convoys coming through. And it was a really good learning experience. And it was a true infantryman's fight because you, every day was something new. And we lived in houses in the middle of the city, in the populace. And, you know, the, the, the rules hadn't been written yet. You know, this was the Wild West. There was a whole time in my, 
in you know my experience over there when we drove around in nissan patrols so like regular suvs we would have to run up to Erbil to buy stuff for the Iraqi highway patrol that we were mentoring because they couldn't get it, but the Kurdish could get it. They could import it. We would go buy it and bring it back down to them. And yes. it was just like, it was just a crazy time because it was literally the wild West. And, you know, we still lost guys. Um, Kyle Thomas, like I said, he died in an IED strike. Um, and that was the first guy that I knew personally that had been killed. You know, you know, other people like, oh, so-and-so from this battalion died. And you're like, oh, I never met him. Maybe I saw him. And then like this guy, I had known he had been in my platoon. He jumped next to me. Um, he was an amazing human being. And he died, you know, doing something he wanted to do. He left a really good life behind. He was an older guy and he left a really good life behind and uh, sacrificed his life so that a people that had been oppressed for so long could experience the democracy and the freedom that we have in the Western world. Um, and it was very sad. I still, like, I still obviously have his name. I don't have my bracelet, but his name on my wrist or his name on my tattoo on my leg, but it's, you know, it was, a, it was an experience that I took away that Iraq as a whole, as I was there longer, I really questioned you know, why we were there. Mm -hmm. uh, being in the north of Iraq, especially, where you see these different groups of people, you had the, Kurd, the Kurdish, you had the Assyrians who were ethnically Christian, and then you had the, you know, um, the Sunnis and the Shiites. And they all hated each other. And I was like, for what? Like, what, why, do, why do you hate each other? Where does this hate come from? And then, you know, we never found weapons of mass destruction in my tour. And we never found these things that we were told we were going to look for and these, these things that we were going to stop. And it was very frustrating. Um, and actually, at that time, I had decided that uh, I wanted to get out of the army. Um, my experiences had had pushed me to leave the army and actually try uh, to join uh, the Air Force, which is what I did later on in life. Um, the highlight of of my deployment, I think, was I was given a very big honor, and uh, I got to take leave halfway through Iraq. And I grabbed my my fiance at the time, and we went to Vegas and got married. And then I came back to Iraq. Um, but the highlight was I was, yeah, typical. <laughs> fucking shit show. Go, oh, it was gra amazing. Grab your fucking Italian fiance, go trip out to Vegas, get married. Yeah. Fucking, yeah. and then a couple of weeks later, right you're, back. Ba you're back in Iraq. Yeah. Yep. Oh, bro, that's crazy. fucking brilliant. I love that shit. It was crazy. It was crazy. Um, but the problem was, is like, if I had died, she wouldn't have gotten any benefits. So I wanted to make sure that that happened if something happened to me. Um, so... The honor that I got, like, at the end of the deployment, you know, because we were a European quick reaction force, all of our vehicles throughout the entire deployment had been green because we brought them from Europe, right? Yeah. So I was a gun truck section sergeant, and our battalion was going to go back to Europe, but we had to go from northern Iraq to Kuwait to put our vehicles on boats so they could go back. And 
they said, Sergeant Colleton, you're going to be the lead vehicle in the entire battalion and navigate us all the way down. And I was like, uh, okay, <laughs> awesome. So I had a 50 cal gun truck and, uh, I had a gunner and a driver and I'm sitting there getting ready. We're doing this huge briefing. It's an entire battalion's worth of vehicles. And I'm the point man. I'm the navigator for this entire battalion for this three day trek down to Kuwait. And, uh, I had my gunner was my normal gunner wasn't on the trip because he didn't take leave. So he got to fly back directly, but my driver had been on leave as well. So he, he was stuck on there with me, but my, I, I'm telling you, my driver and gunner were the craziest motherfuckers ever. And they installed like a stereo system in our Humvee. They like tricked all this stuff out. I had the best vehicle to do this with. And uh, I'm excited. I'm like, hey, I'm going to lead the vehicle. And my company first sergeant comes up and says, all right, Sergeant Colleton, I'm riding with you. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, why would you want to do that? And he goes, Cause if the action happens, this is where it's going to be at. Let's get after it. And I'm like, Oh my God. So like no radio, no, no music, nothing. Right. And so first day we're like, you know, listening to the radios, calling back and forth. Like, you know, you know, hooligan five, this is our, you know, my call sign was hooligan five. We're like, we're doing this back and forth and we're, we're chatting back on, on. Um, so we had this thing at the time called blue force tracker, which was like this computer screen in our vehicle. And it showed you where everybody else was. And you could send like, like text messages almost to another vehicle by their call sign. And my, my platoon sergeant from another, from my other company was like in the convoy too. And he's messaging me. He's like, he's like, how's it riding with the first sergeant sucker? And I was like, you motherfucker. But so we're driving back and forth, you know, we're driving down to Kuwait and then we spend the night outside of Baghdad. And, uh, the next morning, um, we get in, we eat chow, we get in ready to start the convoy again. And my first arm's like, he's like, does that fucking speaker system work? I'm like, uh, Roger that first arm. He's like, here, put this shit in. And he puts up a, hands me a CD to put in. And he's like, let's get this fucking party going. And he's like, <laughs> he goes in like Kansas some like classic rock and we start rolling. And it's like, he just wants to be one of the boys too. Like he had the choice to, to fly back, but he was like, I just want to be in the action. He's like, I yeah. want to. I want to get in with the boys and drive in the Humvee and uh, ride down. So we made it down. There was a couple IEDs that happened along the way. Um, but what the, the funniest shit was we, we pull into the, uh, you know, we pull in across the border. Once you get across the border from Iraq into Kuwait, you have to go. It's like a weapons free zone. Like you can't have mags in your weapon. You know, you can't have anything. And they're like, okay, like these are the unauthorized pieces of equipment in this. You pull up to this checkpoint. And these military police guys are like, this is the, these are unauthorized pieces of equipment. Like if you have any of these, these things, they're considered contraband. So please put them in those containers over there. And it's like this long list. And all of a so sudden you see, they're like, please put them in those containers over there. So we can take them home instead. Yeah. And so <laughs> like all these guys, all these guys were like getting out of vehicles and you see them shoving AT4s and grenades <laughs> and AKs and all kinds of shit that's in this. These are overflowing. And they're like, they like they hadn't expected to deal with paratroopers. There was like, just like some guy pulling out like a chain of fingers and ears and <laughs> like there you go. Yep, like this is all right. That's contraband. Yeah. But yeah, so we um we spent uh, a few days down in Kuwait. We had to to power wash all the vehicles, get every trace of the Middle East off them, and they shipped back up to Germany to get refit. And they came back down to uh, 
they came back down to uh, Italy to us. But but yeah, I, ro- I rotated back. I, I flew back in from Kuwait to Italy. And uh, this is the kicker, man. Like this is this is how fucked up it is in the world. We landed at Aviano Air Base, and we have to take buses to Vicenza, which is like an hour away to where our families are. And we get off the plane, and we're we're you know we're shaking hands like the general, his wife, the car, they're all there. We get into this big hangar, and they're like, "Welcome home. You guys did an awesome job. You know you were only supposed to be there this long, but you you really stepped up, and everything that happened." Like, you know, you were, you, you answered the call for, for everything, you know, and like, cause we did a lot of missions there that they asked us to do in the middle of, you know, middle of the night because no one else could do it. We would travel all over the place and, and kick down doors and, and do infantry shit. And they're like, you guys did such a good job. The army has decided that in 11 months you're going to Afghanistan. And you're like, so guys start doing the math in their head. They're like, okay, well, 11 months are like all right, train up cycle schools that you have to go to. They're like, they're like I have a month with my family. That's it. Like, this is like, and it just, the mood just dropped, man. Yeah. It was like fucking rad, man. Sweet. And, uh, I went back, you know, we got back home and went, went back to Italy or to Vicenza with my family. And, um, you know, I, I had chosen to get out at that time. Um, but again, the army has final say and uh i was stop lost they so i was told i could not get out and uh i spent 15 months uh, most of which was in afghanistan where i was already passed my my date of separation from the army it's one of those things that when you sign that contract it's in the very very fine print and uh i spent 15 months of uh Basically, involuntary service. So what? What the hell is what the hell is stop loss? Because for us, if you decide to uh, leave the service or whatever, if you decide that you you've had enough and you're you're you know you're, you're signing off, then they can't deploy you in, within your last six months. Like they have a duty of care to make sure that you've got all your terminal leave done, that you've you've gone nope. through all the. <clears throat> all the uh, courses to make sure that you're good enough to go into civilian street and, you know, live a happy life, a happy ever after. So nope. how does that process work for you? If you ended so, up spending a bunch of time over there extra it, that you, you shouldn't have done. It doesn't happen too much anymore because it's, it's kind of a fucked up process. Right. So it happened in Iraq, right. In the invasion, there were a couple guys that, that were like, they were supposed to get out, but they couldn't because we went to Iraq. These guys are only meant to be there for 30 days. So I can imagine exactly. those guys that have got a whole heap of fucking other shit going on other than a year's worth of deployment. Like if you're, yeah. if you're planning 30 days and you end up being there for a year, you know, so they everyone, let them everyone's, go. everyone's got a life. They let them go. So after a few months, they let them go. But there were so many people getting out of the army and so many, so much commitment that the army had at the time to needs everywhere, like bodies that they instituted a stop loss, which says you can't get out. So my end of service was the end of March. It was like March 30th of 2005. April 1st, I was in Afghanistan and I didn't get out until June of 2006. Goddamn. So I spent an entire 15 months 
a large majority of it in Afghanistan, um, stop lost. But it didn't stop me from doing my job because yeah. I loved the boys. And at this point, I had become a, I'd become a, an actual rifle squad leader. I was, I was a staff sergeant, and I, I took a squad in battle company. So I'd gone from able company to HHC to, to battle company of the 2nd Battalion of the 5 or 3rd. And uh, battle company is a very significant company. If you've ever seen the movie Korngall, yeah, that's battle company. So that was the rotation after me in Afghanistan. So all those guys in that had I'd either worked for or had they had worked for me previously in Afghanistan. Yeah, um, like the first uh, Medal of Honor awarded to a living soldier since Vietnam went to a soldier from Battle Company of the Second Battalion, Five or Third of the One Seventy Third. So dudes were, you know, it's a pretty storied unit. And uh, definitely proud to be from it. Um, so I was a squad leader in 2nd Battalion, and, and we went to Afghanistan in 2005. And uh, I could have signed an extension to where they say, hey, our, our colonel pushed it really, really hard to where they say, hey, can you si- sign this extension, you know, and you'll get this bonus or whatever. And it says you'll stay with the unit till the end of the deployment. And I, I didn't want to do that because guys – had been let go during Iraq. They'd been like, okay, now you can go home. Yeah. I was like, I don't want to get to, I don't want to get to Afghanistan for a month. And then the, the message comes down that anyone that stop loss can go home, but I signed an extension. I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. So only myself and another guy uh, didn't do it. And uh, they never let guys go home early. <laughs> but in the end, I actually ended up getting a payment. It was $500, $500 a month tax-free for every month you were stop lost, like later in life. But if I had signed that extension, I never would have got it. So yeah. I got like $8,000 later in life, like tax-free. Good for because you. Because I never signed it. Yeah, I was like, all right, well, hey, it was a benefit. <laughs> um, uh, well, well, just describe some of the, the differences between the environment and the, the AO in Afghanistan that you're working compared to your experience in Iraq. So I was in, uh, we, we deployed in, in uh, March, April 2005 to uh, Zabul province. Um, which is just north of Kandahar on Ring Road 1. Um, and 2005 was a strange time. I mean, 2003, 2004, 2005, 2006 was a strange time in Afghanistan because the Taliban were still licking their wounds from the complete ass-kicking that we gave them in 2001, 2002, right? And then Iraq had really become the mainstream, so kind of Afghanistan had become forgotten about. Um, and our... Like they really didn't know what to do with us. So guys had been deploying to Afghanistan for six months at a time. And then once Iraq kicked off, they didn't have enough forces to do the six month rotation. So they're like, we got to do these year long rotations. So I think the guys that we replaced had been the first year long rotation in Afghanistan. And, um, you know, I've listened to a couple of your other podcasts and I'm pretty sure it's the same way in the UK where, where, you know, you don't want to talk shit about other units, but some units don't have the highest standards, and, and it's just it's just a fact of life. Right? Yeah, you can't you can't all all be in the top third. You, there has to yeah. be at the top third, bottom third, middle third. You, like it just has to be like that. Um, Absolutely. Sometimes and, the guys who think they're in the top third might not necessarily actually be in there, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I had realized that coming from the tenth mountain division, I was in a I, it was a great group of guys, really solid performers. But the amount of training and the amount of like operational, the operational level that I'd done with the 173rd had been like leaps and bounds 
above anything we could have ever thought in the 10th mountain. And the, the big difference was, is that in Iraq and then especially in Afghanistan is that as a squad leader for a rifle squad, I was trusted to do my own stuff. Like they're like, you're the tip of the spear. You're the guy that's going to get it done. Here's your mission to execute. Yeah. And I had full faith and confidence where I think other units, it was really at the company level. Like they were doing everything at these huge levels where I was allowed to go do things at a squad level. Like in Afghanistan, I could plan, operate and execute an ambush patrol at my squad level and be away from the big unit. Like I'd be like, Hey, you know, we think they're bringing weapons in, uh, to this bazaar through these rat lines in the middle of the night. Like I want to take a squad out. I want to lay in an ambush. They're like, okay, plan it up and go. Yeah. And, and they had that faith and confidence in us. And then the other thing about Afghanistan in, in, in 2005 was they didn't really have an in-state to what we were supposed to be doing. Like they really didn't know. Like we, we didn't train the Afghan army. We didn't really work with them. We were operating by ourselves in, in independent company operations. And then they would give us battle spaces and we would go own that battle space. Um, and that's why I was talking about those like 45 day patrols. Like when we first got there, we relieved the company that, you know, that had been there before us. And we did our, our right seat, left seat rides with them, our handovers. And they're like, this is what we do. We, we drive vehicle patrols from, from this giant fob, uh, in Kalat. And we drive out, we drive to these villages and then that's it. I'm like, okay, cool. So, uh, we did that one time when we first got there and we're like, this is fucking stupid. Like this is, this is, this is dumb. We're not going to find bad guys. They can see us coming. They know we're coming. Like, this is dumb. Like if they do get us, like we're going to strike an IED, like this is stupid. So we didn't do it again. Yeah. We, we, we would, we changed our tactics and we went back to like the Vietnam style insertion and patrol. And we would, we would kilo in to one mountaintop or one valley. And then we would walk 60 to hundred kilometers over a few weeks patrolling and denying the enemy the space to operate in. And if he did poke his head out, we would fucking annihilate him. And that I think was a big difference. Cause I don't think that had happened in Afghanistan post that 2002 really ass kicking, you know, into the later days. And we were, we were out there on foot and we were unafraid to mix it up with the enemy at the, at the squad level, at the platoon level, at the company level. And um, we did those patrols quite a bit. And then we were, we were doing one of those patrols and we um, got helicoptered into another area to a bazaar in the middle of this mountain area where all the villages around would come to this one bazaar and do all their, uh, their trading and their purchasing and stuff. And, uh, our battalion commander was with us and our company commander was with us. And it was my platoon. And he said, uh, all right, guys, um, make this your home. We'll, uh, we'll drop stuff off to you. And we're like, what? <laughs> and it was one of those things where it was like, we were going out on a three to five day patrol with assault packs. And now they're like, all right, this is your new home make it your home. And it had been a police station that had been overrun by the Taliban and it was bad guy country. And we just moved in and we made it our home and we patrolled out of there and we do assaults out of there. And we spent the next six months, you know, living, uh, at fucking 9,000 feet. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, 
obviously in those mountainous areas uh and at such high altitude you guys must have been fucking machines by the time you finished that deployment yeah but it was funny is because i was fat <laughs> because, hey listen he... listen this is something else i want to get out there infantry guys have got fucking dad bods but they're fit as fuck 100 percent. some of them so we're some of them we would patrol man and we're like at nine thousand feet and the, the best time the best times were we would get all these people that would come out and visit us because our company had three platoons and each one of them had their own little base their own little their own little secluded area out in the mountains in about a 45 degree or 45 kilometer circle and guys would come out to us from like, you know, Sergeant Majors and, and, you know, all these distinguished visitors. They would fly from Kandahar, which is almost at sea level. And they would fly out to us. And we're like, I think we called it Spartan Base. It was like at like 9,600 feet elevation. And they would get off the aircraft and they would start walking and have all this kit on. And they'd be like, <gasps> and I'm like, what you're feeling is 9,600 feet. That's the altitude that we live in and operate in every day. Those ridges that are around us go up to 13,000 feet. And you're like, you guys walk up there? We're like, yes. Yes. Walk. Walk would be an understatement. We fucking <laughs> fight the enemy on these exactly. fucking things. Um, exactly. Yeah, I'm, I remember watching uh, that documentary, Korngal. And, you know, I, I'm predominantly working down in Helmand and, and, and Kandahar. It's very flat. Um, there's, there's not much terrain whatsoever um the the most you'll get is a canal a canal bank and that's about it you know there's no elevation oh yeah um so i remember watching that i'm like fucking hell there's guys actually living in that shit in afghanistan um i'd done loads of fucking uh helicopter ops and i always remember flying past mountains and shit and looking down thinking fucking hell this country's actually like really nice it'd be be fucking nice to go on a hike there if there wasn't a war or whatever it'd be nice to visit you know, just like stupid things that you think about as you're as you're fucking looking out the the back of the 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 Chinook or whatever. And um, yeah, when I when I first seen that Korngal movie, I was like, "Fuck me!" Like these guys are. This is a fucking absolute grind. These boys are going through. Um, Nightmare. And I don't know how I don't know how your your kit was weighing because listen, it we were we were just overburdened we were carrying we were forced to carry way too much you know it comes down from command that or higher that you have to carry this you have to carry this you have to carry this and like 90 percent of it's complete completely useless like we're carrying it because that's what we're we're conditioned to do in conventional warfare but now we're fucking got plate uh body armor with plates and fucking yeah. all this shit that we're not normally using in the uk plus a bunch of extra op specific shit that we're not usually carrying as well plus a full full set of op, op ammo you know op weapons um and the kit just fucking piles on we had a politician yeah. we had a politician come out and like one of the 18 year old uh, guys he was um he so we use this this ecm equipment and the the blue is the heaviest right and so it's, it's basically just a piece of equipment that cuts out radio signals so we can't, you know, detonate IEDs. The enemy can't detonate IEDs uh, from radio command. And um, the politician couldn't even pick up, couldn't take his, his day sack, his patrol sack, and lift it off of the ground. He couldn't even get it out of the dirt. And this is an 18-year-old guy that's carrying this fight in the fucking enemy uh, day in, day out. And... You know, it just shows. It just just goes to show that it's like 
the guys are fucking so great literally fucking amazing yep. that you, you can give these guys a task no matter what no matter how hard or how how um how unbelievably difficult it, it's perceived to be and they'll get it done they might bitch about it like to fucking hit to high heaven but they'll get it done um but how, you know how they're gonna bitch about it fuck yeah how, how is uh how was how was your like uh loadout then what were you guys what was the sort of average weight of what you were carrying so that's a that's a great question and um so we still had we had transitioned from so in iraq we had woodland camo ibas our body armor because they had come from europe and uh desert uniforms we still wore in the dcus the three color deserts in afghanistan um was we were one of the first groups to get this thing called uh rfi it was like rapid fielding initiative and it was like all the sweet kit that you wanted but like you, you you the army didn't provide you right like molly pouches and like vests because when we went to iraq like guys were still wearing belt kit like you know like we still had our old school lce the same stuff they wore in vietnam yeah but this had been the transition so you're now wearing these molly vests we had iba um so it's just regular body armor thank god we didn't have like the arm stuff and like the crotch protect like all that stuff wears you down the only thing we had was like these neck guards but all of us took them off like none yeah. of us wore it. it was just straight straight body armor and we had uh, the ACHs, so the Advanced Combat Helmet. In Iraq, we had had the regular Kevlar, like old school Fritz helmet. Like, but we'd gone and, you know, we transitioned and we had the new ACHs, which were way more comfortable and just easier to manage. Still heavy as shit by the time you put a strobe light on it or you put your NVGs on it. You know, it's like, that's why I got neck issues now is because I wore a helmet with a fucking night vision device on it for 18 years. Um, so... Like as a regular rifleman, I learned in Iraq that ounces make pounds, man. And if I needed ammo in a firefight, there would be ways to find it. And it would be either off the dead or the wounded or out of an assault pack or D. Lincoln saw ammo, but it would be there. So I really didn't, the standard combat infantryman's load for a U.S. Army trooper is is seven mags. So six in your pouches and one in your rifle. So 210 rounds. And I kind of stuck to that, but I was carrying two frag grenades. Um, as a squad leader, I always carried two smoke grenades. And then on our, most of our missions, we had a ruck with us too. Um, I would have some smokes in there, but you know, when we're out, we never had a full complement in our squad. I'd never had a full squad because guys were rotating and out going on, on leave. Um, or doing their normal stuff or guys would get promoted. I would lose a team leader because he got promoted and he would go take over. So we're only running with six, you know, six or seven dudes and a regular squad supposed to be nine. Um, so we, there was never standard riflemen. Guys were carrying, you know, one guy carried an M14 as our designated marksman. Um, I had an M4, but for a lot of times I would carry a 203 because it would, it would cut the weight of someone, of one of my troopers, my Joe's carrying it, who would have to go into a house like it'd be easier for me to carry it. Right. Cause I could drop smoke with a, a grenade launcher or I could drop an HE round where I wanted it, where I wanted the boys to fire. It was easier for me to, to, uh, dictate that. I'd had a platoon sergeant that I picked that up from, uh, previous in, in the 173rd who was, who made all the team leaders in our, um, company or in our platoon carry the 203. And mostly it's that that's like a private's job because you're carrying extra weight, but, the theory behind it is, look, man, like 
you can guide fires by where you put your rounds by smoke round or by an he round yeah. and you know you're you're leading by example and that kind of stuck with me um even later on into like the air force special operations yeah. stuff. those 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 things are good uh, good use of target indication absolutely and when you're when you're engaging you know those they have a they have a max range of 300 meters so when you're engaging targets in a close-in fight like that's a really good thing to have when you're like all right, we're going to, we're going to assault the objective. I'm going to put three HE rounds right here real quick. And now we're going to go, yeah. you know, and, and you can, instead of telling, you know, instead of telling, Hey, Grenadier, I want, you know, one round HE 200 meters on my tracer fire. And you're like, I'm doing it myself. And the boys are, you know, zeroing in off that. So fucking swag method, just fire from the hip. Just guess where, if it's right, boing, and it, it's gone. I had a guy, I had a guy deployed with me. He was my, I was a point man and he was my, my cover guy. And he, he had the same thing. We call it a UGL in the UK. Uh, it's the exact same thing. It just goes under the barrel of the rifle. And uh, every single contact we would get in, within about 10 seconds, he had one of those guys, one of those things going. They're amazing. And I'm like, where the fuck did that just go? He's like, I don't know. It's gone. <laughs> it's gone. It's going yeah. somewhere. I know. Yeah. But it's a great, it's a great piece of kit, man. And it's, 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 you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a poor man's mortar and you can, you can drop a, a big thump real quick, real soon on top of the enemy that thinks like, you know, you're undermanned and it's a great, it's a great thing. It's a good way. Um, it's a good way to boost morale as well. Pretty quick as well. You know, once, uh, once a boy see a good direct hit, everyone, oh, yeah. everyone's morale and, goes up. And you know that sound, right? Like, you know that sound. Like, you know you know what a saw sounds like. You know what an M4 sounds like. You know what a 240 sounds like. You know, and then you hear that thunk of just, that round You know what off. it is? I think it's just because it's so, it's so innocent. It's like, it's so yeah. very quiet. And then all of a sudden, in the distance, all you hear is... But it's like a, <laughs> it's like a go fuck yourself. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Experience this. And you can use it, you know, what the greatest thing about that tool is, you know, you can use it close to 50 meters in front of you. Yeah. And like... You know, you're not, you know, you're not getting spray. You're not getting splash back at you, but you know, you're directing it right on them. And yeah. it's such a cool, it's such a great tool. And it's such a good use of the weapon, you know, in, in a close in infantry fight. And it was great for me to have as a leader. Um, Cause a lot of times too, I would, I would end up finding, I would, you know, we go into a village or going into a compound to clear or going into a hit. And I would be giving as a squad leader, I wasn't going in the door with the team to clear but I would be giving the designated marksman who's carrying an M14, I'd give him my rifle and carry his M14 because, dude, he's not going into a building with an M14. Like, it's just too big. So mm -hmm. I'd give him my M4, I'd carry that. So I used to carry, like, one or two M14 mags, you know, just in just in case. Um, we all carried every one of them. It's like standard paratrooper tradition, man. Everyone carries 100 rounds of 7.62 in their ruck for the, for the machine gun. You know, saw gunners are carrying 600 to 800 rounds of link for their saws. Yeah. Some of them would carry a couple extra mags of 5.56 to use or to pass out. Um, uh, any standard rifleman, he's going to get taken down because he's going to be carrying a, an AT4 or a law or a claymore on top of everything. And then, you know, we only have one medic per platoon. So we all had individual first aid kits, but, you know, I carried a bigger first. I learned in Iraq dealing with some extreme casualties that I wanted, you know, I wanted more medical kit on me than what I was going to use on myself because if I had to use it on somebody else, I needed more than just what was in there. Um, so guys would, you know, you're carrying, you know, combat lifesaver bags all mixed in and then, uh, 
you know, I had a radio myself. This was the time in the embitters, the 148s came out. Like uh, I had a, when we jumped into Iraq, I had a, a PRC 126, which is uh, like an old school Vietnam radio that you like dialed the frequencies in and had like the old school hand mic, like talking on oh, it. Yeah. And as a squad leader, I carried that. But, but uh, we started carrying, um, I think we took it from the UK, actually. It was a, it was a, a big British thing, like the, the one earpiece. With yep. like the rubber piece with like the little like cloth headset yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. and it's got like a yep. little uh make yep. piece across yep. that yeah we started getting those and those things were fantastic yeah they're, were, they're called PR, prrs personal role yep. radio yeah though so just that headset itself was brilliant and i carried that because a lot of guys were starting to get issued like the peltor style things like but i couldn't hear i i didn't like it it was too confined i couldn't hear what was going on around me yeah um so i just carried that i wore that forever or I, I wore uh Where did you get that? Like a lapel mic. Uh, I got that in Afghanistan. From a British guy? No, no, no. We got them, we got them issued for our plugs. All right, like, okay. Uh, All right. <laughs> they must have got them from the Brits, though, because our, our uniform jacks were different, I think, than the uh, the British ones. I never uh, I never really did a lot of work with uh, UK forces. We were in different areas. We So we did have Harriers, like UK Harriers, that supported us on CAS a few times in, uh, in Zabul province, in the Argonaut river Valley, but I never really, um, spent a lot of time mixing it up with the UK boys. Only one time on a soccer pitch in Kandahar when, uh, one dude broke, like smashed my team leader's shoulder. <laughs> what, what year was that? That was 2005. <laughs> oh yeah. Before my time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I wouldn't be seen dead playing soccer anyway. I'm fucking. I'm. I'm more of a rugby player. I don't have the finesse for that. Finesse, uh, yeah. For that womanly sport. <laughs> um, but what, what were some of the? What was uh, one of the the key events that, that stick in your mind from Afghanistan? Then as as a squad leader. So we um, when we when we got into contact, it was sustained contact. Um, I'm talking like 72 hour gun battles um, and, and, and running gun battles. Um, there were a few times, there was one time we, we were uh, the task force QRF. So we were the QRF for all of RC South. Um, and we got called out. Uh, one of our sister battalion, our sister companies had run into like, again, it's, you're out patrolling. They don't know you're out there because you're walking and you can disappear places. They walked into a, a Taliban meeting. And it was like 200 guys that had set, come into this meeting to, because I don't think the Taliban had known what to do with us because we were so unconventional to what they had seen that they didn't know how to act. And they would like take their pot shots and they would, you know, drop 107s on us. They'd fire RPGs from cover, but like there had never been like sustained ap- actions. Um, and then they rolled in on these guys that were in the middle of the meeting and there was a huge gun battle. And they, they dropped us in um, as the QRF in blocking position to keep them from, from escaping down the, the adjacent valleys. Excuse me. And uh, we came in at night. Uh, I remember our CH-47 was going, like flew right across the gunfight. And there were tracers going all over the place below us. And uh, it was so crazy that the door gunner on the 47 let go of the gun and like pulled himself back in. Cause he was afraid he was going to get just, and we're just like, fuck yes. Like this is awesome. And uh, I remember 
like the ramp coming down and it's like, all right, this is going to be hot. And they put us on a blocking position and we didn't see anything. But uh, the middle of that night, there were like 14, 15 dudes that were trying to get out of the battle. And we, we called in AC-130 fire on them right in front of us. Um, it was like 200 meters in front of us, but we were on a cliff and they were down below. So it wasn't danger close to us. But uh, we dropped, you know, one of five rounds right on them. And it was gorgeous. It was <laughs> a pretty, pretty sweet thing to, uh, to see and uh, to feel. And then um, we, had a, we had a really good – so what you, were, what you were talking about earlier was like, you know, the infantryman will carry anything and he'll do his job and he'll just walk and, you know, he'll bitch. But, but when it comes down to it, when it's time to fight, like that guy – the guys that I know that I can, that I was in charge of and the guys in my platoon were fucking ferocious. And like, once that moment happened that it's like, it's on like bitching ended and these guys were going to kill. And it's one of the greatest things to see. And when you're with a unit that's been trained so much and you do so many exercises that it's clockwork and it just happens and it's guys setting in positions of fire and we got hit. We've been in about a 72 hour gunfight um we'd we'd kind of done vehicles and foot and uh i was a section sergeant for a gun truck so my squad was on a couple gun trucks and we were just supporting the guys on foot so basically we would like let the guys walk a couple kilometers ahead in the river valley and then see if they got hit if they didn't we'd bring up the trucks if they got hit we'd bring up the trucks and and lay in you know we had 50 cows and, and mark 19s and lay in some pretty heavy heavy uh heat on them and so we'd we got hit one night in our, uh, in our patrol base and we returned fire and we sent out a Reiki, a Reiki patrol and they, you know, had found the position where there was, you know, the fresh wrappings from the RPGs and the, 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 the piles of brass, you know, from PKMs and RPKs and then AK rounds. And so we knew there was a good, you know, a good unit in the area. Cause you know, guys, your average, Taliban dickhead with a with an AK will just you know pot shot at you. But if they have support by fires, if they have you know it's a, it's a good unit out there. And uh, so we found that, and we pushed into a village where we thought they may be coming from. And of course, you know the village says, "Oh no no no, no Taliban here. We're all good. We don't you know nothing nothing bad." And uh, there was one guy that we rolled up that was military age. He he didn't have like farmer's hands, like yeah. And you know what I mean, right? Like, like this dude's not not digging in a digging in a ditch for the rest of his life, grow, <laughs> he, growing shit. He'd been typing all his life rather than fucking digging, uh, yeah. irrigation ditches. Yeah, and and you could just tell that this guy was not. So we we rolled him up, we grabbed him, right? And uh, you know we're going back with this dude, and and we get hit on the way back. And this guy's eyes, like that's one of the, the times that I've seen like pure evil. And it's in, it's in this guy's eyes, right? He's just looking at us like he hates us with every ounce of his life. And, and uh, we got hit by a pretty coordinated group of, of uh, bad guys. And uh, they started dropping mortars on us. So they were pretty coordinated. Their mortars – so I think their, their delay had been – like their radio delay or their runner link was like three minutes too slow because they would always drop mortar rounds on where we had just been. And so like it wasn't getting back to their tubes fast enough because they, they were dropping Willie Pete rounds and they were dropping HE rounds. And it, yeah. you could see it like, oh, shit, man. It was like 300 meters behind us as we'd go forward. And, uh, you know, 
we kept this guy with us, but they, so we were crossing a river. It was the, it was the uh, Argandab river in the Solon Valley area. And our first couple guys, this is, this is where they weren't as trained, but our first couple guys made it across the river on a footbridge. And I had to ford the vehicles a little bit further down, but the, the dumbasses, the Taliban were, they hit us right as just the first team got across the bridge. So if they had separated us completely and had the guys on foot and like the vehicles, like we would have kind of, kind of fucked because it was in this like bend of the river, but they didn't do that. So we still had superiority where we were at and we still had, you know, I still had two gun trucks with a Mark 19 and a 50 cal. And uh, they hit us pretty hard several from, from three positions around the mountain, um, several RPGs, you know, def- you can you know, definitely hear the RPKs, the PKMs firing at us. And uh, this was probably an hour or so before, for uh, last light. And I had a team on the other side of the river. Um, platoon sergeant wasn't with us. So I was kind of acting as the platoon sergeant because I was in the, the largest group. And then my company commander was with us. Um, the lieutenant, my lieutenant wasn't with us. He was with another group um, back at where the, we had kind of, he was with another, left another squad at the compound with, with um, where we slept the night before with the lieutenant. So we're in this little tick and, um, you know, we're, we're directing fire and, and, uh, my medic is standing next to me. He comes over and he, he doesn't have his rifle. And I was like, doc, where the fuck is your rifle? He's like, it's on the bridge. So he had been <laughs> in the middle of the bridge when he got hit, when he got shot and, and, uh, dropped his rifle and jumped in the water and then like swam, like made it over to where we were. He's like, yeah, it's on the middle of the bridge. And I'm like, doc, you might need that. So <laughs> we're going to have to go get that. And he's like, what out there? And like, I'm like, yeah, doc, we're going to go get that. He's like, I'm going to provide cover fire and you're going to get your rifle. He's like, okay. And so I'm like, are you ready? So I ran out and I started like popping at, you know, known likely and suspected targets. And I realized like, it's a stupid thing to do. Cause I'm the only dickhead out there firing my weapon in the middle, in the middle of the open. But I had to get him to get his rifle. So he ran over, grabbed his rifle, and then I came back. And I'm like, all right, Doc, don't drop your weapon again. Like, you know, we don't need you yet. There's no casualties. Like, maintain. So then my commander and I are talking, and we're like, you know, if we can get a gun truck around the other side, you know, then we'll have fires on both sides of them, you know, with a mark and the 240 on the truck and then the 50 cal. Like, we can get, you know, kind of isolate them and, and hit them from two sides and we yeah. can salt up. And he's like, yeah, he's like, Roger that. He's like, all right, take your vehicle and go and ford it like 200 meters back and cross over. I'm like, all right, Roger. So get in the 50 cal truck and I'm the TC. And my, my 50 cal gunner, dude, he's a, he's a, he's a PFC. He's an E3, just living his best life, just laying 50 cal rounds <laughs> at known likely. He's just like big old grin, just ripping targets, you know. And this, we didn't have like, like, this wasn't the armored, like, turrets it was just the shield on the front of the 50 cal yeah and he was completely exposed and he's just ripping targets with his 240 and uh we go to cross this river and as we're crossing on the left side of the vehicle the riverbank in or like the river in the middle gives away the sand and the whole left side of the vehicle sinks into the water and is dead in the water so now we got this humvee with a 50 cal in the middle of the river that can't go anywhere and he's just like you can hear rounds dinging off the top of the Humvee as they're zeroing in on him. And he's just, he just looks at me. He's like, Sergeant, I'm good. You're all set. 
He's like just he's just traversing his turret, just ripping 50 cals into up this ridge line, da, 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 up this ridge line. And then he would switch off and he'd drop his 203 and fire fire, you know, grenades off into that. And that's what I mean is like looking at that dude, right? He's an E3, man, but he's living his best life. And he's like, this is all I've wanted to do in my life, and I'm getting to do it, and no one has to tell me what to do because I know what I'm doing. And then like a saw gunner who is the same thing, you know, like our, I think you guys call them the LMGs, right? Yeah. The two he's, he's got his bipod up. He's on ground. He's in front of everybody covering the, the right side of the, of the convoy, just laying waste. No one had to tell him to do that. He just did it. Right. And I got other team leaders going around, you know, telling guys to slow down the rates of fire, conserve their ammo, distributing ammo left and right. And then we had a, a mortar team with us too, a 60 millimeter mortar team from our you know, company and they're getting fire missions set. Like they're setting things up. We had an Air Force JTAC who was on the SATCOM trying to get assets in. And it ended up being a few hours we were there and we had to, we had to winch this vehicle out of the river under fire um, with A-10 cover overhead. And it was, it was, it was pretty, pretty sketch, but it was also one of the greatest times. Because yeah. again, my company commander who's like, Sergeant Colleton, full faith and confidence. Get that fucking vehicle out of the water. Roger that, sir. So pull the other vehicle over, get a chain going while under fire, dragging this thing out, you know, and my 50 cal gunner just da, 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 laying waste. You know? <laughs> We're bringing him cans of ammo, wading into the chest deep water, throwing wa- throwing cans up on top. And, uh, you know, these guys had just been on patrol up until that moment when it got switched on and, and they're, you know, they're doing the right things because it's so ingrained in them and they're the greatest, like, I think they're the greatest, you know, they're the greatest humans, man. Yeah. And they're not special forces and, and they're not, you know, super high level dudes. They're 18, 19, 20 year old guys that are out, you know, looking out for each other's back and who are out fucking killing the bad guy. It's all a matter of perspective, right? So a regular infantry battalion, platoon you know company is going to be better doing infantry operations than a special forces unit because th- that's not what they do they don't do infantry ops I know. they don't do regular conventional uh deliberate attacks on a company position they like they're not doing that on a battalion they're not doing battalion attacks you know um they do specialized ops they do ct uh they do hey-ho they do uh, dives they do a whole bunch of shit that regular infantry units don't do but that makes them different it doesn't make them better i mean generally they're better they, they, they get way more training the guys are selected through way a, more funding yeah they get way more funding and the guys that they get at units have got a, have went through a strong selection process so they generally do have better guys there but that doesn't mean that their character of the people that are at regular infantry units aren't as as up to standard um, those guys who 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 you were talking about just there just it seems like they were smes of their individual role and then that, that's all it takes good leadership and good training get the guys to a level where they where they understand their role and understand what they what they should be doing at any one moment in time and it's, it just becomes that flow state it's uh it's when it all goes well and when it all goes to to plan like you just described there it is literally it's like poetry in motion it's it's fucking um it's a unique experience that that 
you only can understand if you've lived it. Absolutely. But uh, I want to ju- I want to jump up to the the Air Force then because you mentioned earlier on that you sure. you wanted to leave the army and join the Air Force and then you ended up deploying with the army one last time to Afghanistan. But you you ended up joining the Air Force and um, did you were you able to select the role going into the Air Force or did you end up being lucky enough to just find yourself as a okay. specialist? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I, I did, I spent that 15 months, right? I, I came back, um, I had a great company commander who, um, in January of 2006, so the, the company was not slated to come back until March of, of 2003, but because I never signed that extension waiver, um, myself and another Sergeant, he said, Hey, I want you guys to go back early and you're going to set up the barracks for the guys coming back. He's like, you've done your missions, you've done your tours, you know, you, you know, we had lost, um, end of August and September of that year of 2005, we lost five guys from our company. We lost two of our lieutenants. Uh, we lost 50% of our lieutenants in the span of like 10 days. Um, and it, it had gotten real nasty in, uh, August, September, October where the Taliban really wanted to hit hard before they went away for the winter. Um, he said, you know, you guys have done your stuff. You've done your trigger time. You've chosen to get out, like go back, enjoy it. Just, which was great. Cause we weren't put on rear detachment. We were just at rear detachment was still wearing like woodland camouflage, but we still wore our deserts because we were still considered for the deployed. Yeah. And I could do fuck all. I could do whatever I wanted. It was great. <laughs> and, uh, we just went back early and then I got out. Uh, the company came back in March, April. They went on leave. I got out of the army in June. Um, my intention had always been to get out of the army to join the Air Force. Um, it's not that I didn't like serving. I I really wanted to serve, but I wanted to serve on my own terms. I wanted to do something on my own terms. So I had actually tried to reenlist a couple times in the army. I wanted to become a flight medic, and 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 serve on on helicopters and and be in medevac. But they said, ah, oh, you're an E6 in the infantry. That's all you can reenlist for. That's it. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do that. Like, like, no thanks. Because I knew the writing on the wall. Yeah. And we could see it. You were going back to Afghanistan a year later. And then a year later after that. And a year later after that. And I had friends of mine that were peers that were E6s with me that did that. And they were killed. And they died. And it's how many times can you just go back before it's your lottery and, and you get severely wounded or, or you die? And I didn't want to, I was like, if I'm going to do it, I want to do it on my own chances. And I, I wanted to be, I wanted to join the Air Force to be a JTAC. Um, I did, I look, cause I love, I love the Army infantrymen. It's the greatest thing in the world. And I wanted to be able to support the Army infantrymen in a specialized role. But these guys only deployed four months at a time. They had a lot better kit. They were a lot better well taken care of because they were in the Air Force. And I had seen that through my deployments uh, in Iraq being on an air force base and then, you know, with JTACs who were with us in Afghanistan. So I, I clean left the army and I, I moved back to the States and was like, Hey, I'm just going to go to the air force recruiter. I'm going to get this done. And I'm not going to take no for an answer. So I went to the air force recruiter and the guy said, Oh fuck. Yeah, absolutely. hundred <laughs> percent. And I'm like, okay, that was a lot easier than I thought. So he's like, um, you have to do, 
he's like, you have to, he's like, he's like doing this checklist. It was like, um, are you this rank? Yes. Do you have these medals? Yes. Do you have this? Yes. Are you an, are you an instrument? Yes. It was like, all right, you had to have like 30 points off this checklist. And I had like 45. And it was like, yeah, you can do it. He's like, the only problem is we only allow so many every year to come in. And this was, this was like August and the new, so we have it, we call it a fiscal year in the United States. So our, yeah. our new money kicks over in October. He's like, so you have to enlist October 1st to get that. So he's like, come back to me in, um, in, in uh, September and we'll, we'll work it all out. I'm like, okay, cool. So I'm living in the States. I'm with my wife and my one-year-old daughter back home where I'm from. I don't want a job because I'm like, well, I'm going to go do this real quick. Like I'm living off all my deployment pay. I just been deployed for, for, you know, 12 months. Plus I got that $8,000 for being stop lost. I'm like, this is great. I'll just we'll have an apartment. We'll be good. Yeah. Um, I'll just work out every day and just you know, do, do live life. So I go back to the recruiter in September and he's like, Oh yeah, no, it's not going to happen. <laughs> I'm like, what? He goes, yeah. So they change the policy and they say, you have to hold an equivalent job in the other service in order to come over to the air force. And I'm like, well, we don't have JTACs. And he's like, yeah, I know it's, he's like, so like the jobs that are like banned, like if you were a member of the band, you can come over. Or if you were an EOD guy, like a bomb disposal guy, or if you were a rescue swimmer in the Navy, you could come over to be a PJ. You just have to go through the selection yeah, yeah. and stuff. And I was like, well, this fucking sucks. So my, my, um, I went back and talked talk to my dad and, uh, the, there's an air force base, uh, next to where I grew up in the town where I grew up. And it happens to be where the, the United States air force combat survival school is because they go up into the mountains in Washington where I'm from. And my dad called out to somebody at the base that he knew from my dad got out of the military. He's kind of got into politics. It was like local level politics. Yeah. And he knew some people and I get a phone call from a chief master sergeant. So like a sergeant major type from the survival school. Who's like, Hey, I, he's like, I heard you're interested in coming out and joining the air force. Like, would you like to come out and talk to me and just kind of see what's up? And I said, I said, chief, I'd be happy to. So I'm, I'm technically still in the army at this time. You know, I'm still on my, my terminal leave and stuff. Yeah. So I, I, I'm like, well, I guess I got to make a good impression. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to go out to the base in my, my, my class B uniforms, right? Just like when I met that recruiter from the guard a long time ago, but this time I got a lot more shit on my chest. And, uh, I, I still, I'm still, I'm still in an airborne unit. So I still have my paratrooper boots on my maroon beret and I go out and I go to the headquarters building I'm like, yeah, I'm uh, Staff Sergeant Colleton. I'm here to see, you know, this chief. And he's like, hold on. So the chief brings me in. He's like, hey, how's it going, Sergeant Colleton? How are you? Blah, blah, blah. Like, great to meet you. And he's like, he's like, what do you know about SEER specialists? And I was like, nothing. I'm like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know anything. And he's like, okay. He goes, so he starts telling me about what they do and, and, and who they are. And it, it sounds really, really cool, to be honest with you. It's, it's a pretty cool job. So SEER is survival evasion, resistance, and escape. So every single thing that those four words entail, SEER specialists are subject matter experts at. And it's the only branch in the US military that has SEER specialists that do it from 
E1 to E9. That's their job in the military. So if like Army Special Forces goes to SEER school, but guys that teach there only teach there for two years and they go back to being a Green Beret. So SEER specialists in the Air Force are survival, evasion, resistance, and escape and personal recovery specialists their entire career. And they live it, eat it, breathe it. And that's what they do. Yeah. I was like, okay, that's cool. And they support not only the Air Force, they support the Army, the Navy, the Marines, the CIA, the FBI, everybody, because it's what they do as a job. So I said, well, Chief, I really appreciate it. This sounds really, really cool. But I said, you know, I, I really want to be a TACB. I really want to be a JTAC. And uh, this is what the recruiters tell me. Goes, All right. He's like, I'll tell you what. He's like, you pursue being a JTAC through the recruiter. He's like, and you let me work on getting you in as a SEER specialist through my channels. And I was like, All right, Chief, sure. So in February, I got a call and he says, Hey, go see the recruiter tomorrow. You're coming in as a SEER specialist. That <laughs> <laughs> was like, All right. All right so man. The Air- I'm here. Yeah. So the Air Force takes, at that time, the Air Force took. Uh, 40 people a year prior service from existing, like they were already in the Air Force, got out and want to come back in, or they were in another branch that, that wants to join. And they take 40 people a year, and I was one of them for that year. And it had to go to the top general of the Air Force desk to get signed off on. So the only caveat was if I failed any portion of the training in that next year, I was out. And I was like, oh, okay. So I had like that, I got to pass or I got to find a new job, find a new career path. <laughs> so I, I, um, I, I joined the Air Force in, uh, let's see here, it would have been February of 2007. And I spent the next year in the SEER training pipeline. So it's not very well known. There's only like 400 in the entire uh, world. Um, you have to go through a selection down in Texas. Uh, I had to go to a course first, which was the prior service, sister service course, where it was one, one week. I had my own instructor and they taught me how to be an airman, <laughs> like how to be in the Air Force. Like I had this, this drill sergeant who walked me around Texas, got me my uniforms, taught me the ranks, like all this stuff. And there was a graduation and everything. Oh like my that's God. the difference. That's the difference in the Air Force, man. It was it was fucking epic. It was great. She would take me out to lunch every day. We'd like we'd be like finished and like it's like I'm like, all right. The only problem was I had to I had to drop rank. So I was a staff sergeant in E six in the air in the army, but I became an E five, which is a staff sergeant in the Air Force. Um so I that was the only thing because I didn't have enough years in their rank structures are all different. So, right. Um I went through selection, um, which is like a, a few weeks long, and I went with a bunch of guys who just graduated basic training who were going through selection, uh, kind of similar to like the 18 x-ray program. Uh, you're one of your guests a little while ago talked about that, yeah. um, you know, kind of coming in same kind of thing. So you go through this selection in, uh, in, uh, in Texas and you, it's all, it's half on base where it's all PT. They're just smashing you all day long runs, rucks, swims, all kinds of stuff. And then you go out to the field, and you do a bunch of exercises because um, the key about being a SEER specialist is no matter what, you're a teacher. You have to educate your client on everything, survival, evasion, resistance, and escape. Um, so if you can't teach, they don't want you. But you have to be able to teach 
after you just, you know, rucked 12 miles. You have to be able to put the rucksack down and be like, okay, now we're going to learn how to do uh, a fire. Now we're going to learn how to build a shelter. So you have to be able to do all that on top of, you know, all the physical stuff. So you do, you do that and then you, you ship up to Fairchild Air Force Base, which is actually where I'm from. Um, so it's kind of cool. I was stationed, you know, right where I grew up. So I knew a lot of the area. But uh, you do the actual survival course first, which is uh, back then it was 17 days. Now it's 19 days where you, doing, you learn all your field craft survival. So you're in a small element and uh, you do all your field craft, you know, shelter building, shelter building, fire building, water procurement, navigation. And then you do um, a movement, rucking, helicopter pickups, signaling, all that stuff. And then you spend um, a little bit of time uh, in the prisoner of war camp. And then you go through all the academics where you learn uh, all the stuff about resistance. And then you go back to the prisoner of war camp and you put into, you put into effect all the stuff you learned and then you graduate. And that's, that's a course that all air force special operations people go through and all air force air crew. Yeah. Like pilot, pilot, pilots yep. and pilots, yeah. gunners, navigators, pararescuemen, combat controllers, TACPs, Anyone that hasn't has a, a possibility of being uh, behind enemy lines, they go through that course. Yeah, and so that's the course you're going to end up teaching as a brand new guy as a seer specialist. So once you go through that course, um, there's a couple of other courses you have to go through. You go through a water survival course where you learn how to you know put the raft out and all the stuff you do in open ocean survival. Then you go through the actual seer specialist course, which is six months long, and you spend time in every single uh, biome environment that you could find in the world. So you do uh, two and a half weeks in the mountains where you build a base camp um, and you're building everything by hand. It's all survival building. So you have an ax and a knife and you're in a group and you build all your shelters and you build this giant, uh, we call them quad pods where we put a parachute over the top and it's like your classroom. And then you're building fires, but everything's time standards. So you have to build a fire that's knee high in this amount of time while the instructor's watching you using the proper techniques at the time, yeah. whether it's raining or snow, it doesn't matter. And on top of that, you're learning how to teach all these things as well. So you spend time in the mountains, then you go out to the desert, you spend time in the desert doing the same stuff. Then you go into open ocean coastal and you're out on the water in a raft. They take you out on a coast guard cutter uh, five miles out and kick you off with the raft and you have to go through all your living survival days. And then you have to come to shore on a raft. Um, you have to survive on the beach. Um, and you're doing this in teams and you're taking turns teaching each other all these lessons while you're doing it. Um, then you do an extended evasion phase where you're in a two man team and there's hunter groups that are out looking for you. Uh, and you have to do your evasion tasks and make radio calls. And if you get captured, it's not fun. Um, and you have to do that in an urban environment as well as in a, a green environment. Um, and then at the end of it, you put it all together and you do a month long phase called teaching text where you have to write all your lesson plans, get them approved by the instructors. Then you have to teach all these lessons to your fellow, your fellow, uh, students. And then you have to do that on base, like in the classroom stuff where you learn how to do like, you know, you learn how to improvise, you learn how to map read, you learn all these things. And then you have to teach your fellow students how to do that. And you put all that together out in the field in a two week exercise called teaching text. And that where now you're being graded on you teaching your fellow students 
how to do this and yeah. how they perform. Um, and then you, you, uh, you do a ruck phase where you, you're walking, you know, 50 plus kilometers teaching map, map, you know, map reading, all that stuff. And then, uh, when you graduate, you're issued your beret. Um, it's a, a sage green beret and you now go into the, the apprentice phase where you have six months to certify as a field instructor, teaching that course to actual air crew members who are getting ready to go out and fight the war. So by the time you, you graduate and certify, you, you know, you've been doing this for, for, for a year and, and two months, almost a year and a half. And, uh, you're a pretty good subject matter expert. Then you have to go to Arctic. We do a Arctic course to certify. You have to go, um, up to Alaska in January and you do an Arctic survival course. Um, and once you, once you teach at the SEER school, so I, I was fortunate enough because I was already a sergeant. I taught a couple lessons. I taught a couple crews. So you carry a crew in the field. Um, then you can go work at, um, so this is also a job that is also par- uh, airborne as well, because you have to demonstrate the emergency parachute to the students. So you get to, I got to jump the, like the orange, white, green, bright parachute at the emergency that's on the planes. I got to jump that as a demonstrator in front of the students uh, as they were going through parachuting survival. So it's kind of a cool thing too. So you still have wings. And then some of our guys, some SEER specialists get to go to halo school and they work um, as test parachutists. Some guys go to scuba school that work in the the, uh, water survival stuff. So it's a pretty unique career field that has some pretty cool um, options. And uh, I got lucky enough after teaching for two and a half years at the schoolhouse, um, I got to go operational where I went out, to Okinawa, Japan for three years. Um, and I, I worked as the primary SEER specialist for a combat wing. So I was the, I was still doing teaching where I was, I was, you know, showing, uh, pilots and air crew and in the air force have refresher training requirements. So every three years they have to go do a one day SEER refresher. So I was running that for them, but I was also working with our rescue helicopters and providing scenarios for them. So having been in combat and these guys were rotating into Afghanistan, you know, every six months as the Pedros um, working in and out of Afghanistan, you know, they were down in Helmand too. Um, the, the air force Pedros did a lot of Kazivak operations. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we used them a lot. We used uh, the Pedros a lot. And uh, even on my second deployment, when it wasn't as crazy, we, we still used it. Uh, our first casualty of my second deployment, he, he got picked up in a Pedro and it's like, um, I mean, I, I I just remember like one of the guys hit an ID and then there was a long contact afterwards. Um, and it was like, you know, as a private soldier, you don't get told shit. So you don't really know what's going on, but all you're talking about to the, the boys left and right, you're like, what the fuck's going on? Why is, why is, why like, why is no one come, come to pick the boy up yet? And then, you know, little do you know that the, the British medical emergency response team they they won't fly on onto a hot lz whereas it's like right as soon as they've said we are not coming it then defers straight to the pedros and pedros are like okay live for it send us in yeah and then as soon as it like like we were talking about earlier on when it with those uh ugls being fired in as a target indication like as soon as the boys hear that pedro's coming it's like it's fucking ultimate morale one yeah. because you know that your your fucking boy's definitely going to get out of here fine, and then two because he's in no better hands than a fucking PJ. PJs yeah. are f- like someone asked me on a, on Instagram 
uh, must have been about a month ago, well, not even a month ago, must have been a few weeks ago now. Like, uh, what's the best role you ever worked with or ever seen? Like, I never worked with a PJ, but the best role I ever worked with was the Pedros and the PJs together. Like, 100%. 100%. That's the coolest shit in the military. If you're listening, you need to go, like, and, and you're a motivated dude, you're fucking all about it, get yourself to be a PJ. Um, if I had the chance to move to the States right now, I'd, I'd fucking sign up and try and become a PJ myself. But, um, yeah, they, they just provide so much morale and so much fucking, um, experience and they're just at such a high level that, you know, for a fact, when, once you, once they're being picked up off the ground, like they're not fucking, they're not dying in the back of that helicopter. They might die when they get to hospital, but they're not dying in the back of that helicopter. Oh, absolutely. The the difference is, man, is like, and I was fortunate enough. So I, a ton of my bros. So I've been, uh, I was fortunate enough to be in rescue squadrons later on in my career. And when I got out in the air force, I was in rescue squadrons. So a seer specialist, which is a really cool thing in a rescue squadron is part of what's called a, a guardian angel team, which is uh, a combat rescue officer your PJs and your seer specialists. And we all work together to execute the five pillars of personal recovery. And, you know, PJs do that and combat rescue officers do that critical piece of, of recovery where they're going out and, and they're doing the, the mission to get those guys off. And I got to see that firsthand multiple times. Um, but the difference is, is that PJs and the, the Pedros, the aircraft themselves, they're armed, right? And they will put themselves in severe positions to get that casualty or that survivor out of there. That's what they do. And the back of that aircraft is a fucking ambulance. Like they have more stuff than just our regular medevacs do because our regular medevacs are, are just our, our, our army medics in the back, but like they have like advanced life support systems in the back and they, they will do everything they can to keep that casualty you know, alive. And I saw it multiple times. Um, and, and I have a bunch of bros who, who are PJs and, and you know, I'll never tell them to their face that they're awesome, but, but, uh, they, <laughs> but they know it. We have, a, they, they like to shit on us a lot, but, um, it's, it's for me, it's a, for me, it's the coolest job in the infantry and, and, and the, not in the infantry, it's the coolest job in the military. Um, and probably the world, the international military. Um, I just think having that capability, and being that fucking badass to just come into any LZ, pick up anyone at any time, um, and literally just it, it's you know I, I don't get I don't get too too fucking um, too deep into things, but literally they will say they 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 don't give a fuck what type of LZ they're they're being told to come and land in. They'll come, no. they'll do it, and you know at the, at the risk of losing their own life. Uh, and I know their motto is something like to save others or. Put others that, other, that others may live that others may live yeah so like there you go it's like they don't give a fuck as long as the other others may live so yeah i i really do have so much respect and and almost every bloke i know that deployed and, and operated with the assets of pedro uh back in them you know will say the exact same thing that they've got nothing but ultimate respect for for pedro and pj uh pjs like our our uh our mert uh, they have a fucking, they have about, I don't know how many, they have about six guys in there that just provide security. They have about three or four nurses, a surgeon, you know, I don't know, a bunch more medics and the the P 
PJs can do that all with two blokes. You know, they can have five casualties in there and two two guys working on them at the same, all five at the same time. It's it's just incredible. And you know, I never really understood exactly what their job role was until I seen a, a program called Combat Rescue. Um, I think it was on Discovery Channel or something like that. But it's just fucking insane. I wa- I remember watching. It, I was just like, this is literally just unbelievable. You can't you so can't it- you can't get your head around it. Absolutely. So that's so that's why the piece of it with the SEER specialists, the PJs, the crow, and the aircraft crew members. So that's the other thing that's 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 kind of like everyone's like PJs are, are amazing and they are, but the aircraft, the air crew members that fly those Pedro aircraft, we call them the Jolly Green Giants, right? From our Vietnam history, you got to think these are guys that choose and girls that choose to fly in a helicopter in the Air Force which is not, which is kind of looked down upon because everyone's like, I'm going to fly fast. I'm going to fly high. I'm going to fly this. But these, these, these guys and girls choose to fly helicopters and their sole purpose in life is to fly into denied areas to pick up those other pilots because that's what separates us from other militaries is that, Hey, we're going to send you behind these lines to drop these bombs, but we're going to come get you if something happens. And we have a dedicated force which yeah. sets them up. Don't, don't don't get me wrong. When I when I'm talking about Pedro, I'm talking about that whole oh, yeah. asset. I'm the whole talking package. about the whole yeah, the whole package, and then you know PJs as a separate package. So you know the fucking pilots, the gunners, whoever yep. whoever's accompanying them. That whole Pedro asset is what what I'm talking about. And they're amazing Insane, people. Yeah. Amazing people. Um. So I was fortunate enough. Like I said, I went to Japan, and I was in. So the Air Force has these like wings everywhere, and you have these use aircraft inside the wings and, and you support them as a, as a seer specialist. But uh, Japan is the, is the only combat wing in the air force where we have kind of everything. So you have F 15s, you have the Pedros, the, you know, the HH uh, sixties, you have air refuelers, you have the airborne AWACS controllers, you have um, assets across that are like your intelligence assets and your special operations, aviation assets all out of one base. So you really get to do a whole lot. Um, and we also have, two rescue squadrons, the helicopter rescue squadron and the PJ rescue squadron that's, a, that's uh, attached to them. They, they work separate as well. So in 2011, um, I got the chance to deploy back to Afghanistan uh, with a rescue squadron and uh, as a part of a member of a guardian angel team. Um, myself and another SEER specialist, I was the, uh, the second guy. He was the tech sergeant already. Um, and our role is once, once something happens bad, we're there to be inside the... Um, command center to be the advocate for the guy on the ground because we're the ones that trained him. So if, if they're looking at a map, they're like, well, what would this guy do on the ground? Like, well, this is what he's going to do. He's going to go here because it's high ground for him to radio. He's going to go here because there's water or this and that. And then we kind of work with the, the team as they get ready to go in and help them out. And then once they recover somebody, we're charged with doing the debrief uh, to gather lessons learned and intelligence. We're the first people that that recovered asset sees other than medical staff yeah which is a pretty sweet pretty sweet role because you're you're immediately pushing stuff back out that that could be um you know you know implemented inside the force right away and in 2011 i, I had to do it you know for real eight times we had uh, eight aircraft that went down um that not only rpjs picked up but some others were picked up by other you know internal army assets as well so it was a you know, again, going back to what I did in the army, I got to do it for real. And then 
training as a seer specialist, I got to do my job for real in theater. You know, there's no better place to do it than with a rescue squadron. And I was the, you know, what was unique about being in Okinawa, hey, it's a tropical island. <laughs> and I lived five minutes from the beach, which is awesome. But <laughs> I was able to communicate, I think, with the PJs and the helicopter guys on a different level because I had been on the ground already. Like I could tell them what guys were thinking about on the ground. Cause I'd been there. Yeah. Like I can, you know, operate at that level, but I can also operate on a briefing level and tell, you know, from a survival aspect, w- what you're going to do here and w- what you're going to do there. Um, so I-, I was fortunate enough to do that in 2011 and, 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 uh, you know, see it from the, from the rescue squadron ground. And, and it was a lot of boring time where you're sitting there waiting for something to happen. But we, you know, we'd go out as, as good seer guys, we would go out and find trouble. Um, we'd go, you know, figure out people who needed maybe a little additional training or guys that, that were working with us that never uh, got to get the type of training that we did. So, you know, we went out and worked with uh, the New Zealand SAS guys. Um, we went out and worked with some German uh, recon guys. Um, we worked with some German police um, kind of going all over Af- Afghanistan and Kabul region, just, you know, because we're all there together, but they don't understand our capabilities. Yeah. But I'm the one that can, because the PJ is tied to the flight line and he's stuck on alert. I'm the one that can go out and travel and be like, Hey, this is how you do a signal. This is what you can expect on pickup. This is, you know, all these kinds of things. And these are the capabilities. And, you know, these are some urban evasion techniques, you know, and, and uh, I've got some really dudes those those skills are are ones that guys will love to have as well so like i imagine the reception that you you would get would be fantastic absolutely the uh the uh the nzsas guys were were more than happy to to grab some stuff from us and i they ended up coming uh they ended up coming so we went my my myself and my my buddy we that i was there with the other seer guy we flew into kabul international airport and this is it's so funny dude like the shit that happens in theater that's like, just makes you think like, where am I? Like, why is this happening? <laughs> so I, I flew, I flew, uh, we flew into, into Kabul and we're sitting outside like the airport waiting. And these two, these two dudes show up and they're in like an SUV and they got beards and, and they're like, are you Bobby? I'm like, yep. Like, hey, it's us. I'm your ride. I'm like, oh, this must be them. And we just jump in with them and we take off to their compound, like somewhere in Kabul. And it's like, no fanfare, nothing. It's just like, just get in the back. Let's go. And there's like a 240 on the ground and some grenades rolling around on the floorboards. And they're like, oh, if we get hit, we're going to do this and this and that. And, you know, we'll be there in 15 minutes. And, you know, we walk into their compound. And of course, they've got beers and they've got all kinds of stuff. And, you know, they're just good dudes. And they're like, all right, this is what we're looking for. Like, this is the kind of training we want to do. Can you guys do this? And like, absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, they were going out on target all the time. They were supporting um, a, a CT unit from the Afghans. Um, it, it was actually pretty sad. They lost two, they lost two SAS guys while we were over there. One guy I was pretty close with, um, he was killed, um, which is another one of the most incredible experiences I've ever seen in, in my life. Um, when he was killed, they uh, invited us uh, to the ramp ceremony on uh, Bagram, and it was very, very small. But uh, all the guys, all the SAS guys there, uh, did the haka, 
as they put him on the aircraft. And dude, it's one of the most, it's like you, the guy was a great dude, but like that kind of send off and like the power that that has when there's only like there, you know, I'd been to, you know, I'd lost multiple friends on multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I'd been to ramp ceremonies, you know, in Afghanistan, I, I had to put bodies on the C-17 to fly home. We didn't talk about that. I had to fly home with some of my guys too. Um, but like there were thousands of people that were lining the, that were lining the, the path to get those heroes to their final flight out of Afghanistan. And when I was with the, the SAS guys, there was like 60, right? but it was their close personal friends. It was more of a thing like we're, we want you here to celebrate this guy. And, and when these guys did the Haka to it, you just, it's like, Holy fuck, man. Like it's a whole nother level. Yeah. Uh, that, that was one of the things I'll take away from that, from that, that tour for sure. Yeah. And for guys who are listening and, and don't know what the Haka is, it's a, it's a traditional war dance at New Zealand, uh, Murray's, uh do to you know just to commemorate events so it might be going into battle it might be you know a death of someone it might be a, a wedding or or anything they just have a hacker that that, that will commemorate uh, an, a certain event um and it may be good for you to to go on youtube you know you follow a new zealand soldier hacker because they are fucking powerful bro they yeah. are fucking powerful uh but that's pretty that's pretty awesome that they invited you along and to get to witness that because that would have been a, a you know something that you're never going to forget no and I, I tell you man like it was you didn't know like there was a bunch of other special operations guys out there um from some other countries and uh like when the like i said man it was like i had done it multiple times for my own guys and when the vehicle pulled up with his remains and the new zealand flag on the casket there was one dude standing there to meet it. And like, he had a war club in his hand and he, you know, started screaming and he started doing their tradition. And then as they brought his remains off the vehicle to bring it to the New Zealand Herc, like the other guys, like all like took off their combat tops and like met him like met their brother in their tradition and it was it was fucking epic and it's like that's why i talked about like when i sent you the email man it's like the brotherhood that transcends the national flag on the uniform it's an infantryman's bond with another infantryman is something you can never like it's so incredible and that moment was just it's like you can't like, that's why I started, like, that's another part of my life that was like, I need to live my life to the fullest because people don't get the opportunity to. Yeah. And it was just so fucking incredible. And I was fortunate enough to train those guys, you know, before he was killed, he, he came back to our rescue squadron and I did a huge lesson on, on like urban evasion and like urban survival for these guys. And we had a brew up together and, uh, you know, we sat on our deck and smoked cigars and just bullshitted. And then, you know, they, they have, I have a, a Kiwi deployment hat, 
like the black hat that has a little bitty kiwi on it that they gave me. They, they gave me a bottle of uh, SAS wine with the crest on it. Oh, nice. Um, just, just cool things, man. And just cool dudes. And uh, that was, that was pretty epic. And then at the same time, it was a, it was a rough, it was a rough deployment. Um, you know, we had eight aircraft that went down, but we also had at that time when we were there was extortion uh, 17 went down, which was, uh, the largest loss of life for the seals, uh, ever. And, uh, we were in theater when that happened at Bagram. Um, there were, there were, uh, three air force special tactics members that were on that aircraft as well that were killed. And, uh, when, when that happened, they didn't have enough special operations guys around to be able to carry the number of, of, caskets onto the aircraft so they called over to the rescue squadron and a bunch of my buddies that were pjs knew the two pjs that were killed uh, who had been on courses with them it's a small community as well who had known those guys so we went over um and you know we we carried their remains onto the aircraft as well so it was a it was a pretty busy five months and a pretty pretty crazy five months um as well so you know that's something that's like I told you in the beginning, like right place, right time, right, you know, right moment in history that I've witnessed these things. And it's just like to be a speck on the wall. Like I wasn't an operator. I wasn't anything high speed cool, but I was able to support these guys when they needed it and and give them the right things that they could do to hopefully survive, you know, if the worst ever happened to them. And yeah, it was a pretty, uh, pretty intense, pretty intense time frame. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know fucking war is hell man and and, and sometimes it is, it's super rough and those those learned experiences though they set you up great for, great for the future and great for your own personal you know mind some people struggle with it some people you know it it, it strengthens them and and um you know each each and every individual has to take it their own way but it's it's definitely fucking it's not a nice experience going to war listen it's the best time i ever had in my life but it's not it's not a nice time you know, it's not, it's not a fucking, a happy, you know, it's not like you're going on a holiday or vacation or anything, but it's, uh, it's definitely fucking, you know, crazy, like you just mentioned, but, uh, we're, we're probably going to have to start to wrap up here, so, no problem. yeah, uh, uh, I'll just fucking, uh, I'm not going to rush anything, but we, we can just maybe, just maybe ask you when you look back and we can talk about it all, we can talk about this shit for hours, so, um, if if you look back in your career in, in review, how how do you how do you um, how do you look at it? Um, it, it's a. I look back on my career to say, um, I did what I want. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. That's a fucking great answer. <laughs> I did what I want. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, that's how it fucking needs to be. Guys need yeah. to do what the fuck they want rather than getting forced down shitty paths that they have no yeah. intention of being down. Yeah, but yeah. that's a fucking fantastic answer. That's the truth, though, man. Is like I looked at it and and I said I wanted to do this. I'm gonna go do it, and I did it. And I got, like I said, dude. When I went to airborne school, and I see all these memorials and these fucking statues for these guys that like you know went into into world war ii or korea and i was like 
dude, I'm never going to jump out of an airplane in combat. <laughs> and I did. Yeah. And like, no one was shooting at me when I jumped in, but I exited an aircraft over a foreign country that we were at war with to go close with and kill some bastard who wanted to kill me. And that was epic, right? I got to do that. I got to be a squad leader in Afghanistan. And, and I got to lead my troops on reconnaissance missions, direct action missions, patrol the contacts, vehicle patrols. Like the, the, the fucking video games are made after what I did as an infantry squad leader. Listen, like, the, 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 the gold standard over here in the UK has been a section commander in, on deployment. So on, on tour, right? Which is what you were, section commander squad leader and then second to that would be platoon sergeant <laughs> and you also said you were doing acting platoon sergeant so it's like fuck me and that's on that's on the second deployment never mind doing the combat jump in iraq and, and spending a year there it's like um it's a very fucking full career uh before you even switch to the the air force and and, and then you switch into that and it's full of fucking uh crazy times as well but you know very uh i don't know what the word would be very uh, just fucking cool just like that that's your that's your job seems fucking cool bro it was man and like i said like i i so i spent time in i spent time in okinawa but i was back in afghanistan right not a problem but then i also got to go to malaysia where there was a there was a uh exercise between our f-15s and MiG 29s from the Malaysian Air Force, and they brought me with them because part of it was a, a combat, uh, a CSAR exercise. And I had to take a pilot up into the fucking jungle in Malaysia and get him on the ground so he could get picked up by the Malaysian Air Force. And we're riding up a boat with Malaysian Rangers like four hours up into the hinterlands. <laughs> and like, I'm like, yeah, this is my job. Like, this is what I get paid to do. <laughs> like, it's. I could get people told me they're like, there's no way the air force is going to take me. They don't do it. And I was like, okay, well guess what? I'm going to do it. And like, I did what I want. Right. I wanted to do this. I got out. I didn't retire because I didn't want to do it anymore. I didn't want to put up with bullshit. I didn't want to put up with, with, with people's agendas. So I chose myself to get out. And like, that's a huge piece for me, man, is, is live your life to the fullest, do what you want, because people don't get to do that. And I look back at all the bros that I had that, that paid the ultimate sacrifice that don't get to live their lives and don't get to say, fuck it, I'm going to go do that. Yeah, and more, more power to you, bro. More power to you. Um, transition out, transition it, tr fucking hell. Transitioning <laughs> out of the army. Uh, you started a non-profit for... Uh, veteran suicide prevention yeah so talk, talk to me talk to me about that because i've spoke with uh chris labus from project uh, storytime project and he he's doing a, a very similar thing and every a lot of people know about you know the the significance of the number 22 it's apparently or it is the 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 number of veterans that you know commit suicide per day in the united states and you know, it's obviously a big deal. So talk to me about why you started that and what what you have going on there. 
So as I transitioned out of the military, man, like, so, which is one of the reasons I got out is because I got assigned to a place where I was the, uh, one of the only SEER guys. I was in a, a unit that, that didn't have a good mission. It wasn't a combat role. And I was miserable, man. And I didn't want to get promoted because it would mean a desk job. And I didn't want to keep going on. And I was isolated. I went through a horrible divorce. I was separated from my daughter. I was in, you know, Tampa, Florida, which is a really cool spot. But like the job itself was miserable. And I was isolated without anybody. And I didn't have, you know, a lot of, you know, friends and family around there. Um, and to that, I had lost to this point at that time in my life, three of my former soldiers to suicide. So one of them was a guy who survived the jump into Iraq, survived Afghanistan, and ended up killing himself later. Another guy had been a, a, a new guy before Afghanistan and had done two tours in Afghanistan and, and killed himself. And another guy had been um, in Afghanistan vet and had killed himself. And I was like, fuck, dude, I was devastated. And so when I was on my last deployment in 2014 to Afghanistan, um, when, this, when this guy killed himself, and I had, I had spoken to him the day prior on Facebook, um, nothing seemed odd, nothing seemed weird, and, and he was just gone, right? Um, so looking at my own struggles of not being specifically suicidal, but just thinking like, well, what if I was gone? Like, would life be easier for these people if I was gone? Would, would it be better for me if I, like, if I died a hero's death in Afghanistan and, and not have been ever back here and, and put people through misery? Like, what's the difference, right? Yeah. And, and I said, well, why are these guys taking their lives? And I said, well, it's, not, it's most likely not monetary, right? It's not a, an ideological reason. And it's, which is why most people, you know, in the universe commit suicide. They have struggles. I said, well, what's, what's missing in their lives? And it's that tribe mentality. It's the fact that they don't have what they had. So just like you said, that the best times in your life were also during the worst times of your life, right? But you had that support group that was around you that you would have done anything for those guys. And when you get out, and I'm sure it's exactly the same in the UK, it's just gone, right? I know there's, you know, here there's VFWs and there's all kinds of stuff. And I think what they had the British Legion over there and it's, but it's not the same, right? And you don't have a sense of community, a sense of purpose like you did in the military. So I looked at, well, what, what's good in my life? And for me, it was uh, playing hockey, right? And then it's a team sport where you can't be an individual. You have to rely on other people and you have to put out for other people. And then, you have a good time. So I was playing, you know, beer league hockey. And you get to fucking fight people as well. <laughs> well, unfortunately, that's the pros. That's not the, uh, that's not the, the, the men's league. But you do get to throw down a couple times. <laughs> There's no fighting. There, well, yeah, you get kicked out, but you come back. It's a, but it's, it's, it's this group that I had that I played with. And these guys, you know, there was a, uh, a pilot on base who hooked me up with this group. And they were, they were fantastic people. And I would find myself wanting to be there more, right? So Sunday nights was when we played. I would get there early, hang out, have a couple beers in the parking lot. We'd play our game. We'd laugh and joke in the locker room, have a couple more beers. Then we'd barbecue in the parking lot afterwards. And this group, I'd, I'd end up going to uh, the casino with them. Or we'd go to a, uh, 
a lightning game, which is one of the pro teams in Florida. And we'd hang out and like this group was very important in my life. And so when I, when I finally got out of the military, um, my fiance at the time, who's now my wife, who's way smarter than me, realized that that was my sense of therapy and that was what grounded me. So when I left Florida and moved to, to the Boston area, the first thing she said was, hey, we got to find you hockey. And it kind of clicked to me when I was talking to my sister and I was like, hey, what do you think if I did this? You know, what do you think if I just made a, a club that, that could support veterans who play hockey and get together and have some beers and, and skate around? She goes, yeah, it'd probably work. So I did that. I started recruiting. I would walk into uh, rinks like two hours before my game and I'd be the random weirdo that walk into the locker room and be like, Hey, uh, my name is Bobby. Are any of you guys veterans or do you know any veterans that play hockey? And uh, some of them would be like, no, get out. Or some would be like, yeah, you know, I do, or my cousin or this or that. And I would slowly, you know, get people together. And uh, we had our first game in 2015 uh, against the Boston fire department. They have a hockey team as well. And uh, we had 18 guys but we had 300 people in the stands there to watch. Damn. And people were buying t-shirts and they were doing raffles. And it was all the family of these two teams that were there to support that hadn't done this in the past because it hadn't existed. Yeah. And I had smiles and people happy to be there. And I recruited more from that event. And I had a mother tell me, she said, Hey, thank you so much for putting that game together. You know, I haven't seen my son play competitive hockey since he was 18. And it was, it was awesome. And he's 36 now. Like he was loving it. And what I, what I realized was it wasn't the hockey itself. It's the locker room. Like when you walk in to get ready and you're, you're bullshitting with your friends and you may crack a beer before the game and you're, you know, it doesn't matter that you weren't in the same branch. It doesn't matter that you weren't in the same time period. The way you talk, the vernacular, the words that you use, it's all the same, right? Well, that, that's it. Like walking into a locker room that's full of veterans as a veteran, it's like you don't even need – there's no anxiety there. You know you everyone. Just, you, know you, every, just, you know everyone yeah. already. Yeah, you just relax. And it's like there's a guy that, that plays for us who's 60, and there's a couple guys that play for us that are like 22 that are still in. But they can have a conversation that in normal life they would never have. Yeah. And so you play the game, you play the scrimmage, you do the practice, and you go back into the locker room. And guys and girls, they don't want to leave because it's a group that they had in their past that they've refound. And you see it, I see it through social media now, is these people who never would have met each other any other way are now connecting and they're going to do things together and they're 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 making fun of each other and they're ribbing and it's it's so awesome so we've been in existence for about uh six years it's called the skate for the 22 foundation so depending on what statistic you read you know 20 to 22 veterans commit suicide every single day in the united states and the misconception is well that's veterans from my from iraq afghanistan well that's not the case so korean war veterans um vietnam veterans because they've never had the closure. They've never been able to put those things that they did and they saw into the right space in their mind because 
they came back home, they took off the green suit, they put on a regular suit and they did their whole life. And now that their life's over in like retirement and whatnot, they don't know what to do. And they're trying to deal with these things in their head. And it's, it's a, uh, it's a pretty cool thing um, to see. Um, I believe it, it's helped people. Um, you know, we have 400 or so players that have joined up that play all over New England. And the biggest thing for our organization is it doesn't cost any money to play. Um, we keep away the barriers. So if you don't have equipment, we'll help you get equipment. If you've never skated, we have a learn to skate program. If you haven't played in forever, we have skills development clinics that are taught by former pro hockey players to bring you back into it. Um, because in the end, it's the locker room atmosphere. And we want you at those events. We want you in that locker room. What's the, what's the biggest buy-in piece that you've, you've, you've had uh, with Skate for the 22 so far that you've just thought, fucking hell, this guy really like, like this is, these guys are, this guy that doesn't need to be here and doesn't need to be helping out is here, you know, volunteering his time to help out these guys. Well, just what you said, I see that a lot. Guys that aren't on the roster for a game, they'll still show up and they'll sell t-shirts, they'll sell sweatshirts, they'll do raffle tickets, they'll fill up water bottles. Um, the, the, the biggest buy-in that I see is you'll get someone that either sees the website or sees a social media post and they'll, they'll call me or text me or email me, right? And I'll call them back and be like, hey, how's it going? I'm Bobby. And they're like, oh, okay, you're the person from the website. I'm like, yeah. Like, what's up, man? He's like, oh, well, I was this and that. I'm like, that's great. Dude is like, do you want to come out? And I'm like, well, I don't know if, uh, if I'm good enough or I don't know if I'm like this. And I'm like, well, all right, first of all, listen, I started playing hockey like seven years ago, right? I didn't grow up playing it. I just love the sport. So you're good enough. You're already part of it. So just come out, man. We're having a scrimmage this weekend. So that person will come out. They'll, they'll play in the scrimmage. They'll be laughing their ass off. They'll have a great time. And then the next day, I'll get a text saying, hey, you need to call this guy and, and bring him out. He's my friend from this. You need to call this guy. Yeah. Or they'll link them on Facebook or they'll send them this. And you're like, all right, gotcha. Like, boom. That's fucking awesome. And um, and going back to that that talk that you had with the, with the mother, Chris has had the exact same thing. Like he knows he's helped people. Um, and I've had, you know, similar things, but nothing major like that where people are, you know, they'll give me a message saying, Oh, I just discovered the podcast. Um, you know, it's really inspirational. I've, I've been fucking struggling at work. It's been so shit. And then just listening to you guys talk about the like, good old times or just lo- listening to you talk about things that, I, that I'm interested in has been really, you know, really helpful. And it's like a fuck. Like every if you if you if you message me, you'll get a reply. Like I'm going to talk to you back. And especially if you're you're giving me some support, I'm going to say thank you and you know <laughs> you know buy in and, and find out a little bit more about you. So, um, how do you feel knowing that you're actually, you're actually making a difference? So, it's a tough question. So we've had um, two suicides in our organization, and then a third death. Um, that was questionable, right? So I, I can't measure the success stories, but I can sure as shit measure the failures. But what I think gives me hope 
is going back to like a combat role, right? If you have a casualty on the objective, you can do everything you're humanly trained to do to save that casualty. You can call in medevac. You can call in and get them out of there in that golden hour. But if their time to die is that time, you can't save them. No matter how much medical training you have, if they're so wounded that they cannot survive from that, it's going to happen. And unfortunately, I think that's part of it with mental health as well, is that you may be able to give those, those guys and those girls a little bit longer on this world to make the people around them's lives better, their families' lives better. But if they're going to go, they're going to go. And I take comfort in hopefully that the guys that committed suicide in our organization were around a little bit longer because of our organization. That they were around to smile a little bit more, that they were around to give their mom a hug a little bit more, and that they were around to be someone in this world and change a, change a life themselves. Um, that's what I believe. Yeah. I, I, I have to believe that that's the case because I'm a realist, man. You cannot save everyone. And, yeah. and it's, it's triage on the battlefield. You can't waste your, you can't waste your medical supplies on someone that's expectant. You have to move on. Well, I think, I think the, I don't know if you've ever thought about this as well, but you're not just, you know, you're not just helping the guys who, who are, you know, rocking up to these events who are veterans, but you're, you're helping the, the families, the mothers, the wives, the, you know, the, the children, you know, like you mentioned, it was the mother that came up to you and told, told you that she'd never been so happy to see her son play hockey again. Like, you know, even if that, you know, even if the person who, who you, you might be talking about there, who, who did commit suicide, you know, it's their time to go, but by you providing this outlet for them in their last moments might provide a, a bit of, um, you know, a bit of comfort for their family, knowing that at least in their last moments they were, you know, they were with a team of, you know, friends and they were doing something positive. And, you know, you could see a bit of happiness come out, coming out of them at least. Even that, even as you said, if they were, you know, beyond, beyond uh, saving. And it's a, it's, it is life, you know, people do commit suicide. Um, people with no traumatic uh, experiences, people with no depression, uh, depressive tendencies, you know, some people just do it. It's, it's fucking unbelievable that they that they do but they do it's just fucking life and and you can't like you mentioned as well you have to be a realist and you're never ever going to be able to save all of them everyone but i think even having a non-profit is a massive credit to you um and the fact that you're you're having so much uh engagement and you just and just in your own state is is absolutely huge and you should be proud of of what you're doing to help people stay engaged into their community and you know, hopefully uh, tackle mental health issues that they might might be dealing with. Um, but on that, what advice would you give yourself uh, if you could go back and debrief your 18-year-old self now that you've all grown up and learned a few lessons? 
That's funny. So I just, the other night I got a phone call, my nephew, he is uh, 22, I think. So he is commissioning into the United States army in May as a field artillery officer. And he asked me to come out and pen him and, and be his first salute. And I, I was like, that's fucking great. That's an awesome honor. And I'm trying to think of myself, like, this is my opportunity to tell a brand new Lieutenant who has a whole career and I know he'll see war in front of him, you know, how to do it and, and, and look back. And I think if I could tell myself again, or if I could tell myself what to do again, it would go back to do what you want. Don't be afraid to try. And don't worry if other guys are cooler than you. <laughs> live, live in the moment to where you're at. Yeah. If you're a, if you're a two, I was a two forty gunner for a year. Be the best fucking two forty gunner you can be in the company. You know, don't be in such a hurry to do the next thing. Do the next thing. Like, be the best at what you're doing and live it because it's going to be over so fucking fast. And that's, I think it's just like, I look back on it, man. I said, it's like Bosnia was over 20 years ago for me. And it seems like yesterday. Yeah. It's just over. It's I crazy. Like, I have, I have the opposite, opposite uh, memory. So like I look back at my career and I've done 10 years in, in the, in the, in the army. And I'm like, fuck it. It felt like that was never even a thing. Like I, I didn't even do I anything. I feel, I felt like I done nothing. <laughs> no, that ten years is just, just gone. I know. Um, but uh, do you have any final thoughts to to finish out on um, for some of the listeners or viewers yeah, or whatever? The, the the biggest thing is I, I would I would tell this to all my veteran friends and I try to push this a lot is that be super proud of what you did in service, no matter what it was and what your job was, be very proud that you raised your hand and said, I will do it. But don't let that be what defines you as a person. Because Absolutely. like you said, you did 10 years and it was over in the blink of an eye. And now hopefully you have another 70 years ahead of you. Like don't let that define you as a person, but remember that that molded you as a person. Absolutely. And I don't think you could finish out in a better way. Bobby, it's been absolutely fantastic talking with you and I, I really do want to thank you for providing so much detail and so much uh, actual specific detail that we, we can all relate to as, as infantry listeners. Um, you know, fantastic guest and fantastic speaker as well. And I, I just want to thank you for, for that. No, I appreciate it. And I, I really mean it. I was so happy to find your podcast because like I said at the beginning, it's stories that don't get told and these are things that need to be told because so many people will go through their careers just being an infantryman, just being an artilleryman. And it's badass too, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, bro. Well, I'll, I'll be in touch via email, but uh, take Appreciate care it. and have a good night. Cheers. You too. Cheers, bro.